Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. spent our life working on research to show us that both sides of world conflicts have always been financed by the same people. And as I've said before, there seems to be a, a method to the madness going on in the world. We know, of course, that... And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a sinner. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity, live and direct. And hopefully, all goes well. My first guest this evening is James Perloff. James is the author of The Shadows of Power, an expose of the Council on Foreign Relations that has sold over 100,000 copies. And the evidence against Darwin's theory of evolution, he wrote for the New American Magazine for nearly three decades. He recently released his new book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw. And of course, after the break, we will be joined by Dr. Frank Albo. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for sticking around. We did have some technical difficulties, but all seems to be going well. I hope all of you are doing fantastic tonight. Let's bring in James. And James, how's it going out there, James? How are you? Uh, I'm good. Um, how about the live stream? We're good. The live stream is back and in full effect. Everything sounds fine. And of course, welcome back to the program, James. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we still have some listeners out there. We, uh, we do. Again, if we're, we're archived, they, they kinda, with pe- any people we lost can pick it up uh, afterwards if, if they choose to. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Everything's fine now. Uh, James, how are you this evening? Is everything going well out there in your part of the land? Uh, well, I don't like the shape that the world's in right now, but uh, I'm, you know, okay uh, sitting here right now talking to you. <clears throat> Perfect. And of course, like I said earlier during the program about autism, we were talking a little bit about that, and I had asked you if you were basically on board with any of those notions, and of course, you told me that you were fully on board. Oh, 100%, sure. Um, no no question about it. Uh, they're, they're you're making uh, babies take hepatitis B vaccine at the, on the day of birth, which, you know, you, you can't get hepatitis B as an infant. You know, you'd have to have get stuck with a dirty needle or have sex with a prostitute who was infected. Just a big farm, of course, when they make these vaccines mandatory and the H hepatitis B is three times, three doses, and you have mandatory for millions of babies. And just think of the profits for big pharma, which cannot be sued, as you probably know. Uh, they can't be sued for any vaccine injuries. You have to uh, go to vaccine court prove that your child was injured by the vaccine, and then you get paid by the American taxpayer, not by the pharmaceutical companies. It's what a game. No doubt. And by the way, James, are you affiliated with any groups or political parties? Well, no, I uh, independent, you know, certainly I uh, identify with uh, the entire truth movement. Um, I was uh, a member of the John Birch Society for a number of years and wrote for their flagship journal, 
the new American uh, for on and off for 27 years, but I'm basically just a, an independent blogger at this, at this point, but I, I do speak engagements, podcasts, and Twitter, et cetera. No problem. I'm not affiliated with any political party or group myself. I actually was at one time a registered Green Party member, but of course I had to remove myself after I learned a little bit of, uh, about the corruption of good old Ralph Nader out there. Uh, I don't know too much about his corruption personally, but I do know that uh, the big foundations poured um, hundreds of millions of dollars into the green movement, which is basically a pretext for control. You know, you've got too big of a carbon footprint and they can regulate your energy use. It's, it's a pretext for controlling the population. The, the fat cats like Al Gore, they can use all the energy they want in their homes. Al Gore even had a... I don't know if he still does, but he had a heated swimming pool in his house. Imagine right. the energy that uses, you know, but the, it's the our, our energy, the average guy is the one who strict that, and that's part of the whole Orwellian police state. It's just, the, you know, the environmental uh, uh, big brother. <laughs> no doubt. And what about mom and dad? What were they like? Were they religious, James? No, no. I grew up in an agnostic home. My father was Jewish, although I didn't know that until I was over 20. and. Uh, but he wanted nothing to do with religion at all, Jewish or otherwise. And my mother uh, was a son of a Freemason. She grew up a nominally Christian, but uh, we were not a church-going family. We had no, um, you know, God was not part of our, 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 our home. Understood. And another very interesting fact about you, one of, well, not exactly your earliest books, but you did write a book called The Case Against Darwin. I was curious to ask if you still withhold your beliefs from that book uh, today, James. Do I still hold them? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote a book uh, uh, prior to that in 1999, the, the one you mentioned came out in 2002, uh, called Tornado in a Junkyard, which is uh, an extensive debunking of Darwin's theory of evolution. The, the second book, The Case Against Darwin, you know, there were people who contacted me asking for multiple copies of Tornado in a Junkyard, thinking of the legislators or school board members and I said you know those kind of people don't have time for a big 300 page book so the case against Darwin is a very short book uh, that you can read in an hour but um, this was important to me you know having grown up agnostic uh, becoming a Christian in the early 80s I still had these held over ideas you know I still had these memories of reading in National Geographic how Louis Leakey had discovered that we came from the Australopithecines you know these eight men and I said you know I want to know the truth scientifically about man's origins and is the bible right because the bible is quite different than what darwin was saying about you know hundreds of millions of years we all started out as single-celled bacterium in the ocean evolved into um, you know invertebrates and then the, the into fish and then the fish came on shore and over eons evolved into uh, apes or ape-like creatures who evolved into men and i wanted to know scientifically what the facts were when i studied it I was shocked to find, uh, because I'd grown up in Matrix like everybody else, how much overwhelming scientific evidence there is against Darwin's theory. And the reason I wrote those two books was because most of the books were written by scientists um, who were not journalists, and they made tremendous arguments. But sometimes the books were um, a little over the layman's head, and I wanted to write something very user-friendly, very easy I to see. read. I see. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And, of course, personally speaking... I've partially leaned towards the, I guess you could say, the scientific community's evidence that life came from space, a concept that we all know now as a panspermia. Do you believe that's 
not exactly correct, James. No, I, I I take the Christian perspective that life was created by God. I know that Richard Dawkins and others have yes. advanced that idea. But, you know, if you um, we could get into the evidence against Darwinism, but if you believe we came, were, were seated uh, by um, aliens, then you still have to explain how the alien life evolved. Right. At right. some point, it must have started. And that, that that's usually problematic um, because it, the same problems would exist for an uh, life beginning in another galaxy as it would on planet Earth. And James, I do admit that I am an agnostic atheist, mm -hmm. which means I'm at constant battle from within. Some would refer that uh, as a spiritual battle. Perhaps it uh, really just depends on my mood, to be quite honest. Uh, I think I'll keep Jesus in my back pocket. Uh, well, that's uh, a good idea. At, uh, at least uh, have uh, that uh, openness. Sure. To, to, to that, uh, I, uh, like I say, I grew up agnostic, then I was in actually in a new age cult, yeah, non Christian yeah, yeah. cult for a number of years from 72 to 82 before coming to Christ. And then, uh, you know, I became a Orthodox Christian, uh, two years ago, Eastern Orthodox. In other words, I'm neither Protestant nor, uh, Catholic. I was never Catholic, but I, I do believe that we have a, um, a, uh, distorted view of Christianity here in the West, you know, the, uh, the church was basically at peace with itself for the first thousand years after Christ. And then uh, in 1054 AD, the East-West split occurred. And from that point forward, uh, all we got in the West, Europe and then the Americas, was you know, you know the Vatican's viewpoint. And when the Protestants split off, and then they splintered into a thousand denominations and spinoffs, um, we got, you know, a, a very uh, disjointed and you know, very sundry views of what Christianity was. Um, and uh, so I, I don't feel that in the West we ever really got uh, the, the real picture. But Eastern Orthodoxy still worships as uh, was taught by the apostles and still worships using the same litur liturgy, believe it or not, that uh, was used in the fourth century when uh, Constantine first legalized the church. And so um, one of the things I, I realized it's often best to go back to the beginning when you want to of, uh, of things when you want to find out the, the truth about them. Yep, going back to the roots, no doubt. And of course, speaking of which, by 1969, uh, you were an English major at this point in your life, and you became interested in politics. And um, during that time, you gravitated towards the hippie movement, as mm -hmm. one would call it. And tell me about those times in 1969. It, it seems like quite a, you know, it seems like such a wild time. And I assume you enjoyed those times, correct, James? Well, uh, to a certain extent, I did. I uh, graduated from high school in 69, and um, I knew some hippies because uh, there was a place I was volunteering at where there were some hippies. And I wound up getting uh, into a hippie apartment in 1970 in Cambridge, Mass., which uh, is, you know, was right close to Harvard. And that was kind of one of the centers of the hippie movement. And I, I have to say, honestly, that one thing that drew me into the hippie movement was um, being uh, pretty dorky in, in high school. Uh, not athletic and um, not having a lot of social appeal. One thing I really liked about the hippie movement, at least in its initial phases, was that they were very accepting of people and it was right. very easy to get along with them and have adult conversations with them. And I, I much preferred it to the uh, rather rough lifestyle of high school that I'd experienced. Um, so that was one of the things that drew me into that. But, and I did have an interest in um, the anti-war movement. And um, uh, I was, you know, attended some marches, et cetera. And again, a lot of that was centered uh, in, in Cambridge, Mass. But with the end of the Vietnam War, of course, that, that ended and 
what I considered all the good music ended, which I enjoyed, <laughs> you know, Simon and Garfunkel and I agree. Um, the Motown bands and all those great bands of the 60s and early 70s. All of a sudden, vanished and suddenly got replaced by disco, which I really had no appeal for me. Yeah, well, disco and sucks. I, that's, that's yeah, just I, a fact. I stopped. Um, I st- yeah, I uh, stopped listening to to pop music at that point. Continued my involvement in this cult because uh, I was looking for ways out of some of the personal um, problems that I had, um, and then finally realized that the cult had been teaching a lot of lies and uh, managed to get out of that cult. And at that point, I found myself being drawn very much to, to Christ. But one factor in that was actually... Um, oh, James, not, by the way, this this was 1970, correct? Uh, well, 1970, I was a, a hippie, and then gradually that, that movement kind of died out. Uh, the, the anti-war, it actually started to degrade after 1970. But in 1970, which is the year of Kent State and the year of the college strike, um, that's kind of when it peaked. And things were really hopping in Cambridge, uh mass at that time uh i did enjoy it i was uh 18 but i was hanging out with guys who were you know in their early 20s more right. mature than i was and you know it's nice to you know be interacting in a way that i had not experienced in high school but um uh but a thing that really changed my perspective greatly was in 1978 and when i saw a girl reading gary allen's book none dare call a conspiracy and i didn't speak to the girl and I didn't look inside the book, but something told me you have to read that book. I looked at the cover and I said, you've got to get that book. And um, I found a copy of the book in a local bookstore, read it, and that forever changed my perspective because that book, for the first time, made history make sense. I mean, it talked about the Federal Reserve. It talked about the Council on Foreign Relations. It talked about the drive for world government. It talked about the shadow government. And suddenly I realized that history had an agenda and a pattern to it. And... Just to carry the story a little further, the um, author of that book, Gary Allen, had mentioned that the John Birch Society was very much in the forefront of the fight against this new world order, which was true in, in those days. And uh, I went down there, became a member, and I uh, started writing for their magazine, The New American, in 1985, then wrote a book on the Council of Foreign Relations in 1988 called The Shadows of Power, which became a big bestseller for them. And that was kind of the um, embarking on my literary career. But what, what I wanted to point out was that um, the discovery that history had an agenda was a factor in my becoming a Christian because I realized that there was this good versus evil. And actually, if you look at the the New World Order people, I just saw the uh, thing just on Twitter today, a Madonna uh, doing her thing at Eurovision in Israel, and her, her dance or her song was a very much a, like a satanic ritual. And, you know, these guys are into Luciferianism. You know, the, if you look at Bohemian Grove or, or the comments made by – I've seen uh, the, the interview with Ronald Bernard, the Dutch banker. Right. Broke away from the oligarchs. They wanted to engage in satanic spiritual sacrifice of children. Well, when you when you realize that the Luci- uh, that there's Luciferians that are running this new world order, you start to get the picture that this is a spiritual battle, and it you really start to is. realize that if these guys are Luciferians, then the guys on the other side are on God's side. You know, these guys are liars. They kill people. They they uh, cause wars. They cheat people uh, through inflation and central banking. And you start to realize that uh, hey, there is moral. Um, uh, uh, righteousness to be found in in the Christian worldview. I'm, I'm not saying that speaking for all Christians, but but uh, the way Jesus taught it, you know, forgiveness and love and righteousness, and uh, you know, uh, telling the truth, uh, the Ten Commandments, not killing people, not lying, not stealing. Right. Um, I realized that I wanted to be on the side of the good guys. Sure. Uh, but it t- took me a long time to, uh, you know, it took me 30 years to become a Christian, and 
much longer than that to kind of get out of the uh, Western mindset of Christianity into Eastern Orthodoxy. Understood. And we we sort of jumped ahead just a little bit here, but that's okay. We'll come back to uh, the conspiracy realm in a moment here. But just to wrap up things back in uh, the 70s and mm-hmm. that era really quickly here, uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, this cult? It wasn't exactly a Jim Jones type cult now, was it? Well, um, they didn't give us Kool-Aid. But, um, Thank God. Um, I I won't mention the cult's name. It's a well-known no cult. Okay. Um, but uh, they tend to be vindictive. They don't like to be talked about. Um, uh, but uh, it was uh, something that I got into because I had a lot of you know personal emotional issues, and they seemed to have solutions, some of which did seem to work, and I was pursuing it. But in the long run, I was able to discern that there um, – it wasn't delivering what it would have promised. Um, Understood. And that there were, I saw a lot of people really who pretty evil within that cult, and you might say somewhat demonic. And I said, you know, I, I got to get myself out of here. This is wrong. And at that same time, uh, and actually when I was in the cult, I read a book called The Korean Gospel of Jesus the Christ, which is a new age view of Jesus. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by that book. And but it, it was kind of like my first step towards uh, re- reading the Bible and, and getting a, a Christian uh, worldview. Um, but I, I had to get out of that cult. It was things were getting pretty pretty harsh. Yeah, you saw the writing on the wall, and you got out at the right mm-hmm. moment. I would assume. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what, what happened. Okay. Uh, it wasn't an easy cult to get out of either. They didn't like people leaving, so I kind of had to pull uh, pull what they pull a King David as they might say uh, <laughs> right King David once pretend guy got, got himself out of a jam by pretending to be crazy so I had to pretend that I was a little yes. bit going off <laughs> losing going, I going I don't, my rocker to get out of there I don't blame uh, you I don't blame I didn't you. want you know, any uh payback coming from that particular group um later on so oh no doubt um yes but uh, then then I embarked uh, on a you know going to Christian churches and also again getting involved with uh John Birch Society and this whole approach to the New World Order, which was intensely interested in exposing um, what was uh, quite obviously a uh, shadow government behind the facade of democracy that was running things for its own purposes. Understood. And there is a name I did want to bring up here that is Dr. E. Michael Jones. Do you have any uh, opinion on him? I, I have actually interviewed him before, and I found his story about how he didn't make it to Woodstock. And of course, if I was him, I definitely would have made it one way or another. But go ahead. Oh well, E. Michael Jones. You know, I I've, I've just seen some brief interview excerpts with him. I did notice on your website you interviewed him recently, and I believe has he written uh, on Zionism, um, or am I thinking of a different person? Yeah, he he wrote about that. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've seen some uh, articles probably linked to in the past to him. Um, where he talks about Israel, um, what it really is all about in Israel and, and Zionism and I, from a Christian perspective. Um, but I don't have um, uh, remarks of his fresh in my mind, but maybe Understood. you can fill me in a little bit oh, what well, he said in your interview. Oh, he, well, he said a lot of things in the interview, but I, I was just, you know, mildly curious if you had heard of him and what, yes. you, yeah, what you believed. Uh, what he has been saying for, it, it seems like he's grown in popularity uh, out of nowhere, it seems like. And he's always been a controversial figure. Uh, the media really does go after him for a lot of the things that he does talk about on his um, uh, YouTube channel and all the interviews he does. The forgetting the name of the organization, uh, but they, they've been after him uh, a lot. 
because of his views on Israel. Or... Right. Yeah, he, he's just, I guess he's been problematic to some individuals out there, I guess you could say. And that's because of his views on Israel uh, or something else? Yes, primarily. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Israel's been uh, central to a lot of controversies. Uh, you probably know about USS Liberty. Um, they faked us into, punked us into uh, bombing Libya in 1986 through a Mossad deception. That's all written up in uh, Viktor Ostrovsky's book, The Other Side of Deception. He was a former Mossad officer. And I personally believe that Israel was probably the most um, involved force on 9-11. Um, you know all about the dancing Israelis. Oh, yes. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was very close to Larry Silverstein, who bought the um, Twin Towers less than two months before the event. Uh, Philip Zelikow ran the 9-11 Commission as a dual citizen Israeli. Um, Michael Chertoff was put in charge of by the Justice Department investigating 9-11. After it happened, his mother was a founding Mossad um, officer. And uh, all the security at all of the involved airports in 9-11 was uh, uh, run by ICTS, which was a private firm owned by Israelis. I mean, and if you look at 9-11, who benefited? Well, it wasn't the United States. We got a police state and trillions of dollars in war expenditures and thousands of our soldiers' lives lost. And the Middle East Muslims didn't benefit. Um, according to Chris Bolin, 65 million Muslims have been displaced by these Middle East wars. Of course, countless lives lost over there. The whole Middle East has been turned into chaos. We're talking about Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, now Yemen. Um, and uh, the only beneficiary is Israel, which has stood back and watched as the United States takes out one enemy after another in fulfillment of really an ancient plan that the Rothschilds had uh, for this greater Israel project, which dates back at, even before Theodore Herzl began running with the Zionist Congresses in the late 1890s. So, yeah. Um, I know that they they go after people who are critical of Israel, and no doubt, uh, I'm half Jewish myself, but I have no hesitation in saying that uh, Israel is not the friend of the United States. It's it's uh, a covert enemy for a long, long time going back, and so uh, I haven't read all of E. Michael Jones' comments relative to Israel, but uh, I suspect that he and I are very, very much in the same camp. I was thinking, yes, I was just going to say you guys are not too far off. Mm -hmm. in your ideology and and i really like him very much i think he's an incredible uh person and he's very intelligent and i just remembered of course i don't know i don't even know how i forgot but of course the adl has been after him uh, uh tooth and nail to be honest with you um yeah uh well there's a there's a big crackdown going on i don't know if i have the quote handy but um there's this new um sort of uh anti-semitism czar Oh, I'll have to find the quote, but he basically uh, is a, a Trump appointee, recent Trump appointee, and he's basically, to paraphrase him, um, maybe I can find the quote. Well, hold on just a second. Here. No problem. Um, let me see if I can find it. No worries. Uh, yeah, I think I've got it. Um, okay. Uh, no, that's the wrong one. Okay, one more. Okay, we are. His, his name is Elan Carr, Trump's special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. He says, quote, we're going to focus relentlessly on eradicating this false distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, end quote. In other words, he's saying that if you're a critical of Israel, if you're against Zionism, that means you're an anti-Semite. Well, my answer to that is, what about all the Jews around the world? Uh, you know, Brother Nathaniel, Henry Mako are famous examples, but there's a, a, a Orthodox Jewish organization called Naturi Karta, which is totally anti-Zionist. 
and all, all these Jews, uh, my father wasn't a, a, a Zionist, um, even though he was Jewish. I mean, uh, if you're anti-Zionist and you're Jewish, does that um, make you an anti-Semite? That's ridiculous. How can you be a Jewish anti-Semite? Right. That's always defining it. And unfortunately, uh, that is kind of uh, reflective of the power of APAC and uh, the yep. power of, um, uh, you know, the, the Jewish lobby in America and the Israeli lobby. And uh, again, uh, you look at the Middle East wars, they're not doing us any good, but they're certainly doing Israel a lot of good. If you put this into a spiritual context, if you talk about the New World Order and its world government, um, you know, there's been a plan for a long time that the center of the world government is supposed to be in um, Israel, in Jerusalem. And that's really what all this stuff about Trump making, uh, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, Israel is about we're moving our embassy there. And uh, Michelle Bachman, former congresswoman, put up this ridiculous video to the voters of Brazil telling them they should only vote for a Brazilian presidential candidate who will support moving the Brazilian embassy to, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And uh, what kind of criterion is that for picking the president of Brazil? But it's very important to these people. And, and um, the, you know, there's a belief within um, Christian circles, informed Christian circles, that what's going to happen is that. Um, you know, the, the Christian Zionists, they believe that Jesus is going to come back and rule for a thousand years from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Well, it's not going to be Jesus. It's going to be the Antichrist, the figure that's predicted in the book of Revelation. That's who I, I consider those of us who are better informed on this issue, believe. But just to quote David Ben-Gurion, sure. who was the first prime minister of Israel, said this in Look magazine. Uh, January the 4th, 1962 issue, to quote, all other continents will become united in a world alliance at whose disposal will be an international police force. Uh, you can see what he's doing there, Michael, is predicting a world government. Yeah. He says, in Jerusalem, quote, in Jerusalem, a, the United Nations, a truly United Nations, will build a shrine of the prophets to serve the federated union of all continents. This will be the seat of the Supreme Court of Mankind. And quote. So, you know, um, there's this vision for a long time that there's going to be a world government, which, of course, would be dictatorial once you concentrate all power in one government, you know, all hell's going to break loose. Um, but according to the people at the top of this movement for world government, the capital is going to be Jerusalem. And that's has a lot to do with what's going on in our world geopolitically, even though it may not make sense to a lot of people. It makes sense to the powers that be. They've had this as their uh, goal and focus for a long, long time. No doubt. And in terms of religion, are there any specific religions that perplex you? Uh, for instance, Mormonism and Scientology have always been ones that really bothered me for, you know, obvious reasons. We don't have to go too deep into uh, detail here on those two, but I'm sure already some people out there will be offended uh, just by saying that, just by singling uh, those two groups out. Uh, James, what's your opinion? Well, I think that we're... Uh seen a situation where, if I can uh, refer to uh, Lucifer as a real being, that uh, he knows that people have a spiritual character and it's hard to eradicate it. And um, what we saw in the 19th century was a proliferation of cults, including Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, Christian science. Uh, it's just farther the splintering process. You know, the Powers that be have a divide and conquer strategy. Uh, that's very clear from their actions over the years. You know, and one of the ways to conquer Christianity has been to divide it. And Martin Luther, however good his reasons were for splitting with the Catholic Church, and I think he had some very legitimate complaints. 
uh, that resulted in this this onslaught of splintering and splintering of Christianity. And you know, uh, the uh, the uh, British uh, in, in Britain, um, the church there was started when um, the Anglican Church was started because the Pope would not give uh, Henry VIII a divorce, and so he started his own church. Now, did people just in the West started starting their own churches and the splintering and splintering and splintering of uh, Christianity was part of that divide and conquer strategy and which ultimately the Luciferians hope that they will rule. And the Bible predicts they will rule, but only for a limited period of time. Understood. And James, there is another thing I did want to mention here on the interview. Uh, thanks to social media, it is now another tool to police thoughts, another tool for social engineering and manipulation and a way to ruin someone's livelihood. We've seen all these things sort of uh, crash together the the um, better part of maybe five years now. We've been seeing all these sort of movements all started on social media, some good, some bad. Lots of times these plans start off with good intentions, but they always end up very ugly. James, do you agree with that? Well, what are some of the specific movements you're thinking of starting on social uh, well, media? Well, I, I guess I could even a good example would be uh, let's let's just use the Me Too movement. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, to me, um, one thing I've observed is you know the the uh, powers that be they've got this uh, uh, to use a, a Massachusetts expression, wicked big uh, population control agenda. Right. And let me just uh, go ahead. Flip, okay. to, flip to some quotes. Um, Robert McNamara, president of the World Bank, quote, we can begin with the most critical problems of population growth. As I've pointed out elsewhere, short of nuclear war, it's the gravest issue the world faces in the decades ahead. Either the current birth rate must come down more quickly or the current death rates must go up. There's no other way, end quote. Um, Prince Philip said this, quote, in the event that I'm reincarnated, I would like to return. It's a deadly virus in order to contribute something to solve overpopulation, end quote. Ted Turner uh, founder of CNN, quote, a total world population of 250 to 300 million, a 95% decline from present levels would be ideal, end quote. And, you know, the quotes just go on and on from the world elite. They want the population reduced. Well, what I've noticed is that, I mean, you could go back to war, abortion, eugenics, things like that, but um, anything, you, you find that so many of the movements, the feminist movement creating, you know, hostility between men and women, anything that gets men and women apart. Um, this Me Too movement, um, there was a cartoon uh, when that reached its peak where this woman at a Christmas party was standing under mistletoe and none of the men dared to go up and kiss her because they're afraid they're going to get accused of sexual aggression. Of course. And it was kind of, kind of ridiculous with the whole Burt Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh thing, uh, you know, something that happened when he was 17 years old. And, you know, men are afraid now to make any kind of um, uh, do a wolf whistle or any any kind of expression of sexual attraction. Well, men, are, men are of, of, men are afraid to even stand up for other men, James. Yeah, and what happens? Amazing. Is they're, they're keeping men and women apart by this, and you know most marriages started with a sexual attraction. Well, right. You know, uh, and I think that the transgender movement is part of this too. Uh, homosexual marriage and. Uh, even sex robots, you know, you can't reproduce if you're having sex with a robot, right? Sure. The Me Too movement is, I think, at its root, part of all these things, which are uh, meant to keep, keep uh, families from 
birthing and from creating the creation of reproduction and to uh, bring about this population control, which I just gave you three quotes of dozens that the world elite have, have had, but I think Me Too is is a, certainly a fake movement. I'm mean, not to say that women haven't been harassed, but yeah. the emphasis on it is to, is designed to make men reluctant to enter into um, a sexual relationship, which usually begins with some kind of flirting, you know, and with a woman. Um, I mean, it started and, off as a good idea. Population down. I think that it yeah. all seems to tie together. Um, Pretty, pretty uh, uh, clearly when you start to realize that that's a, the common denominator of all these, uh, so many movements, it's been population reduction. For sure. And, and this was a great example of what I meant when there was some sort of ideology, some sort of thought that started off as a good idea and then just turned bad. It turned into mm -hmm. women just wanting to get their names out there and mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to profit off of, uh, off of others, really. And a lot of these women that... Let, let's bring in uh, Harvey Weinstein, for instance, because he's kind of the one that kicked off a lot of these things. Um, I'm sure we could both agree, James, that he's he's kind of a scumbag in, in a way because, you know, he, he is from Hollywood. So he's kind of a douche. <laughs> you know, he's a Hollywood douchebag. Let's be honest here. But but I I'm pretty sure a lot of these women that put themselves out there and agree to do a lot of the things that he wanted to do, or maybe even they came on to him. I'm pretty sure on, on some cases, some of these women, uh, you know, they'll do anything to get ahead, especially some of these actresses, you know, the old mm. routine, James, we, we can't be a fool and act like a lot of times these women weren't, weren't uh, willing and ready. Oh, right. Uh, in fact, that's almost probably an obligatory for many women in Hollywood to uh, get on the couch with a producer. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure uh, there have been, there's no question that many women have been raped and abused, and uh, there are probably women who resisted uh, advances in Hollywood, uh, not wanting any part of it, but uh, others who, like you say, were unscrupulous themselves and right. were, were party to it. Um, but uh, uh, bottom line, uh, the, the, the Me Too movement um, would received the uh, propulsion that it did because I, I believe because it's part of this whole attempt to um, to keep uh, relationships from occurring. You know, when I first read George Orwell's 1984, right, you may recall that the heroine Winston's girlfriend Julia is a member of the Junior Anti-Sex League. And when I read that, uh, I said, Gee, that doesn't sound right, because it seemed like the New World Order was pushing sexual liberation. That, that was true when I was a hippie in the 70s. It was all about sexual liberation. Yep. That was part of the breakdown of the morals that ultimately would lead towards homosexuality, transgenderism, and then feminism and the Me Too movement. Yeah, that's what actually just... Dr. E. Michael Jones actually talks about, the sexual liberation movement, mm -hmm. uh, it being the cause for a lot of what we see today. Yeah, it kind of started that way, and it just progressed. Actually, it kind of started with the anti-war movement. That's kind of mm -hmm. when the culture kind of broke apart during the Vietnam War, and the war protest was kind of the first protest movement uh, that was really taking place significantly. But And then these other movements, as the Vietnam War died down, um, trace their ancestry to that, I, 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 I firmly believe, having, just having watched it, uh, these, these, these things progress. Understood. And of course, James, I know that you probably have been hit a few times with a few individuals out there trying to drag your name through the mud. We've seen lots of online censorship going on. And uh, even myself, I'm not as popular as 
you or other individuals out there, but I've had my share of unscrupulous marauders out there trying to hurt this program plenty of times, James. Um, making remarks about it online, you mean? Or sure, just you know, any anything to try to stop an individual for for doing anything really, trying to spread a certain message. It seems like anyone out there. Uh, that gets offended. That's what they try to do. They'll they'll try to ruin your livelihood some way or another. Yeah, and uh, some of those could be paid trolls, uh, people who are actually on a government payroll, uh, foreign or domestic, who are uh, paid to uh, to stop anyone who's who's trying to tell the truth about what's what's really happening. Because there is a uh, you know uh, very much a a deep state, a, a shadow government, which is international in character. Um, which is um try, which is seeking this global government and world domination and uh they certainly uh the 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 started world wars that have killed tens of millions of people they wouldn't at all scruple or hesitate to hire a troll to to bring down uh, someone telling the truth and uh, they're opposed to the truth I don't know the bible says the devil's a liar and it's true and uh, the, the you know the mass media the mainstream media uh specializes in fake news and false stories they have for years and uh, you know going through all the wars we've been in uh, we've been deceived into and lied into and so um yeah uh definitely there's a campaign out there to shut down the truth tellers no doubt of course and i'm glad you mentioned that because now we are at that portion of the interview where i did want to say you did credit a certain book that really helped you open your eyes and you already mentioned the name of the book and that was from none other than gary allen uh none dare call it a conspiracy and of course, that is a classic, by the way, if, if, especially if you can actually find a physical copy of the book, uh, definitely keep that around. It's actually a great book. Uh, yeah, I used to um, hand those out at work, you know, I said, hey, I, you know, I work on an evening shift and hand it to the night shift people and say, hey, read this this book, you know, that was back in the back in the 70s when I, 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 it really um, turned me on in terms of awareness as to what was happening. I was very grateful to run into that. And. Um, I know some things were not included in his book, and um, one reason I wrote The Shadows of Power was to ex- elaborate on it. I, uh, I should mention, I guess we haven't gone into this yet, but I have two books out more recently. Uh, one published in 2013 called Truth is a Lonely Warrior is designed to be a primer, a to Z primer on the New World Order. So um, oh, I think I got a list of the chapters here, but um, it... Um, and we start out by talking about uh, false flags and the led us to war. And then the second chapter is on you know, the powers that be, the CFR. And then the third is on the Federal Reserve. And then uh, it goes on. We have, uh, you know, chapters on uh, media control and, and uh, the environmental movement, which we've already talked about. And, you know, one on Freemasonry and one on Zionism and one on 9-11 and one on the arts. And um, but then uh, after I wrote that book in 2013, my original website was lost and right after i wrote that book somebody approached me on linkedin so would you like me to help you build a new website i said great so I started a new website and i've been blogging since 2014 on that site and i did release a new book last month it's called 13 pieces of the jigsaw uh, because right. uh as i've continued to write i've learned new things and ex- i've expanded on details and truth is a lonely warrior and discovered things I didn't even know before that aren't in that first book. So they're kind of companion books. It's Truth is a Lonely Warrior and 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, the brand new one. Um, but those are designed to put the 
the reason I refer to it as a jigsaw puzzle, by the way, Michael, is that um, I, I, people hear me give this analogy a hundred times before, but often when you when you try to disapproach people on one issue like chemtrails or 9-11, people say, ah, the government would never do that to us. And if they did, hey, you know, the, the news media would tell us about it. So you, you really can't give people just one picture of the puzzle. you got to show the full picture, I believe, to start to convince someone. You have to show them. Yeah, the government would do that to us and then to us in a hundred different ways. And here are the ways. And you know what? The media's not going to tell you because you know what? Here's who runs the media, six corporations. Right. And who's who runs the government? It's not your democratic vote that's deciding our, our policy, uh, domestic or foreign. It's these, these hidden oligarchs who have been documented going back decades that these people are running the government. And when you show them the full jigsaw puzzle, then the individual pieces start to make sense. Um, so that's kind of what I've tried to do is, is give people as fleshed in a picture as I can of what's been going on. I love that. And uh, sometimes at the end of this show, I say that we sort of put together the cosmic uh, pieces of the puzzle slightly together every episode here once we get deep right. into these things. And yeah, James, I, I agree with you on that. A great book. I, I actually haven't read it, but I did want to... Uh, bring that up a little bit later here as we go along. And as you know, on this program, we talk a lot about conspiracies and just about everything else under the sun. And you've done extensive research on various topics like Pearl Harbor, 9-11, uh, the New World Order, as you were just mentioning here. But of course, I do want to refer back to 1969 really quickly here, James, and mention on a previous episode on this program, I brought in another guest who completely dismissed that we went to the moon in 1969. Uh, James, I'm not sure if you've ever talked about that anywhere else, but I really do want to hear your opinion if, if we actually did or not. <laughs> oh, that's that's a terrific question. You know, I've never written a blog post on that. Yeah, I've never. And, uh, I think so. You know, uh, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I first heard about that from some, from some friends some years ago, and they referred me to a book. And then I went online and started investigating. And to tell you the truth, initially I felt that the people that defended our landing on the moon seem to have some of the better arguments. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, there was a picture of the astronauts on the moon, and there was a rock that had the number three on it. And they said, aha, this is a set prop. Well, a further examination proved that, in fact, somebody just scratched the number three on the photograph. You know? mm. And another argument was that um, shadows were being cast in differing directions, and the sun wouldn't do that. So these had to be studio uh, lamps. And But then some guys did an experiment, and they found that the sh when the sun goes over an uneven surface, it does cast shadows in different directions. And so initially, I felt that the um, debunkers did not have the better the – better weight of evidence on their side. But then I began to read um, John Hamer. He's a British author. His, he has a chapter on the moon landing. He talked about things like how did they get enough fuel to travel a quarter of a million miles and back. And if you look at the sh at the, um, the lunar module, there should have been blast marks underneath it. But then it, it's very tiny. And how did they get the the astronauts and their equipment and the rover all into that little thing. And it's a legitimate question been asked. And even as I understand, the inventor of the camera they used said it could not operate at those low temperatures. And I started to lean very strongly towards the moon landing being fake because it faked a lot of things. And one, one great question, by the way, is how come nobody's been back to the moon since, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's such a, our technology has advanced. You know, we had no 
home computers in 1969. In fact, right. it wasn't until 1972 that we had our first handheld calculator. I remember it in 1972. Uh, Texas Instruments came out with the first handheld calculator, and I gave it to my father either for Christmas or his birthday. And he was just so delighted to have that. But that was three years after. And you'd think with all the advance in technology, it'd be easy to go to the moon now. And exactly. you kind of wonder why neither the U.S. or any other country has ever done that. On the other hand, though, um, just to you know, play the advocate for the other side sure. for a moment, I, I was uh, somebody uh, who's a, a major figure in alt media asked me what I thought of the moon, moon landing. And I said, well, I'm really leaning towards it being a fake. And he said, well... He felt it was not a fake, and one reason is that on the moon, the astronauts left these reflectors that you can bounce a laser off of. And he said, "I've done that." He said that he had done that experiment himself. And he also said that there was equipment left by the astronauts, which has been photographed even by countries that are unfriendly to the United States. And I said, mm, "Okay, well." And so, to tell you the truth, Michael, I'm a little bit on the fence on this. I lean towards it being faked, at least. Uh, you, you know, this is one thing that I <laughs> strikes me as, as funny is that we got this image from the moon, which is a quarter mile, quarter of a million miles away of, uh, you know, um, the, the moon landing taking place. And yet in 1969, we couldn't even get a TV signal. I was in Boston. We could get, get a TV signal from Hartford a hundred miles away. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, I, I lean towards it, but I'm not a hundred percent certain it was faked and maybe you know, some people have suggested that maybe the images we saw were fake, but maybe they really did get up there. I really don't know the answer for sure on no that. Problem. And that's one reason I've never written a blog post. I'd really like to be positive before I write one. Again, I, I lean towards it being a fake, uh, but I'm not sure it was all fake. It's now, a wait, complex thing. Well, it's a, com it, yeah. it's a very complex uh, case, really, because uh, I brought in a, a guest named Scott Henderson, and mm -hmm. he showed me these images that blew me away. There was all sorts of different anomalies that I've never noticed before. And there were uh, one image in particularly uh, was of, I believe, Buzz Aldrin and his watch. And you could see his watch there and you could see what time it was. And it doesn't exactly match up to the time that was reported that that he was even up there. And of course, there's also different anomalies like there being moisture on the flag and on board of the craft uh, you're you're not supposed to find moisture on the window of of the craft uh, out there by the way james so it's very unusual there there's these little things like that that really do make you wonder and of course the technology that we had back in 69 i mean come on now i mean that wasn't that great so i really do wonder if we actually did ever make it to the moon when we said we did and I also do feel that we probably did go to the moon, but not in 1969. That's kind of how I feel, James. Yeah. Well, not to be facetious about it, but somebody pointed out that we hadn't even figured out how to that we could put wheels on luggage uh, at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, make a good point. <laughs> transporting luggage at airports easier. You know, um, uh, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I think that I've heard a lot more evidence in favor of it being a, a fakery. And when you look at these wag the dog scenarios and how many times we have been lied to over the years, going well before then, even talking, if you want to go to the 60s, talk about talking Gulf, you know, and, yeah, that's and how that we fakery. Go, that's how um, we got into Vietnam. So why wouldn't they lie to us about the, the moon landing uh, and in order to perhaps create and uh, have NASA impress Congress into giving them a lot more money? 
I, I don't know the answer on these laser reflectors in these photographs, um, but those are m maybe two facts in favor of the moon landing being real versus quite a few that seem to now be going against it. So I, I lean toward this being um, faked, but I just not 100% certain. No doubt. And it, it's, it's a very popular sort of theory that's been going on for quite some time now. And of, of course, moving on now, there's another thing that we can all agree on. And of course, that was 9-11. That was a turning point, in my opinion, for a lot of American people out there. I was very young when the incident took place, and I still have a very good memory of what went on and how the teachers were uh, interacting with us when I went to school. And they were terrified and, and angry, too. And of course, I didn't know why they were acting the way they were. And I actually got in trouble that day. I was uh, threatened to be kicked out of class and uh, kicked out of class and sent to the principal's office, all because I said at the end of the day, would it be possible if our government had any involvement? And this was way back after that was that was the day it happened on Tuesday, right at the end of um, right in the afternoon. I had asked that in my final period, uh, which would be a seventh period class for those that are curious. That was very very much at the end of the afternoon there. And that's when I raised my hand and asked the teacher and the teacher got furious, James. Well, you know, it's possible you are the first 9-11 truther uh, in history that was punished for questioning the official 9-11 storm. I, th I honestly think so, because at that time I had read things online in between classes and I kept thinking there's no way this wasn't orchestrated uh, without some sort of inside assistance. It just it didn't make sense to me even then as a child. It, it really did not make sense to me, James. I felt no doubt uh, uncategorically that something seemed wrong. Something seemed off. Mm. There's just no way this could happen without some sort of help from our government, James. Yeah, there's, there's no question um, that uh, it was not the way the government said. Uh, one of the anomalies, um, uh, of course, is that everything inside the Twin Towers uh, turned to dust. That includes uh, every toilet every piece of furniture, uh, of 10,000 metal filing cabinets that were all turned to dust except for one, which was crumpled up like a piece of aluminum foil. Every phone was turned to dust. All the people were vaporized. And, you know, that doesn't happen from a building collapse. And if anyone thinks it was just a building collapse, they need to go and find another building collapse where that happened. Um, this was not something that Osama bin Laden or his 19 alleged hijackers uh, could have pulled off. And of course, you know all about Building 7. And right. It's uh, collapsing into its own footprint. Um, yeah, we'll jump into that. Yeah, because of office fires, the government said, but no office fires have never caused uh, a building to collapse before, a steel frame building collapse, excuse me. Uh, and of course, it was not hit by a plane, so they can't use the argument that uh, jet fuel uh, softened or melted the steel. Yes. Uh, on that one. So there mm -hmm. are tremendous anomalies in the government's story. We were clearly lied to and clearly the motivation. It's interesting. Um, I'm sure you've seen that um, interview with General, General Wesley Clark where he revealed to Amy Goodman that there was a plan in the Pentagon in September of 2001 to take out seven Middle East countries. And we've seen those countries, including Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, already targeted with Iran now on John Bolton's. His uh, uh, sights are on that country. Uh, and uh, Wesley Clark actually said um, that that would be the last one. Um, you, you've seen that interview, right? With, Understood. Uh, yes, I, I have, yeah. in fact, seen and, that. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, even prior to that, in the Clinton administration, many of the people 
uh, like uh, Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas Fife, Donald Rumsfeld, and others, were already calling for the taking down of Saddam Hussein. And um, I, I quote um, Pat Buchanan in, in my, my book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, putting out these neocons that already targeted before 9-11 these countries that, that, that Wesley Clark talked about, you know, Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Libya, Somalia. Um, so uh, this is part of a plan. And uh, as you know, uh, PNAC, Project for New American Century, put out a no doubt. A, a, a battle plan called Rebuilding America's Defenses in the year 2000, which called for a new Pearl Harbor. Actually, so James, to, new- actually, James, to even go back even further back in, I think it was even in August uh, 97, FEMA's emergency response to a terrorism uh, handbook depicts the World Trade Center and its crosshairs. Well, um, you've probably seen all the Hollywood predictive programming. Um, I think one of the most significant ones is um, uh, the... Uh, TV show called The Lone Gunman, which came out uh, with their pilot episode in March of 2001, and it involved an airplane being electronically hijacked with the intention to fly it into the World Trade Center. That was just a few months before 9-11. That's why. That was on TV. Um, yeah. There's quite a few other ones, as you know, The Simpsons, sure. and The Illuminati card game, and uh, the singer Prince had a, a song, I believe it was in 97, where he said... Um, uh, Osama bin Laden getting ready to bomb 2001. Look out! You know, some of the lyrics in his song, and there's so many things like that. Uh, even um, Back to the Future had quite a bit of predictive programming about 9/11 in it. You know, when Marty goes back to uh, his own present time, leaves 1955. When his uh, when his uh, DeLorean leaves uh, uh, 1955, he leaves uh, two uh, long stripes. Um, but if you look at the, the screen, uh, the movie screen, there's a neon nine to the left of the two stripes. It forms a nine one one. But that's only one of at least a dozen nine eleven predictions that were contained in that movie. Um, incidentally, the director of that uh, movie, Robert Zemeckis, later made a movie about the Twin Towers called The Walk. Uh, and he made it in the year 2000 or released it in the year 2015, which is the year that Marty goes ahead to in Back to the Future Part Two. So there's just all kinds of predictive programming in Hollywood about 9-11. It just, uh, it's, great it's, film, it's stunning when you look at it. A great movie, by the way, that you reference. And in the chat room right now, I actually have a photo of you uh, holding up your book, The Shadows of Power. And below, there's a photo of myself out there looking kind of creepy in that picture. Oh, uh, from one of your, uh, is the picture put up by one of your uh, people in your chat room? Yeah, it's in the chat room now. Okay, all right. Oh, yes. And of course, I did want to ask you, James, by the way, do you remember where you were Tuesday morning? Oh, yeah, I was at home um, on on 9-11. But I was very distracted. I had quite a few things going on in my life at that time. My mother was stricken with severe Alzheimer's. Oh, no. And uh, my family was dealing with a psychopath, uh, totally separate issue. And um, on top of that, the night before 9-11, I received some really bad news, personal news. And so when 9-11 was happening, I was kind of in a stupor almost and was just watching the TV. And I wasn't really thinking analytically about it as you were. Um, but I, I was at home uh, when, when it happened. Ah, okay. No problem. I remember my father woke me up that morning. He was like, look on the TV. He was freaking out as well. It was uh, quite remarkable. That was such a, that was such a strange time. Uh, to experience. And of course, I, I still do remember how things were after 9-11, the underlying sense of camaraderie amongst the American people. 
Uh, shortly after the incident. I'm sure you are familiar with that. The, the sense of unity sure faded away quickly after that, though, James. Right. Well, actually, uh, not to say that this was necessarily a factor in 9-11, but it's been noted for some time that uh, crises can be used by politicians to unite mm. uh, the population behind a leader. Absolutely. Some felt that uh, John F. Kennedy was trying to exploit the Cuban Missile Crisis to help the Democrats at the election polls in 62 but, uh, you know, George Bush's approval rating soared. I think it was around 90% after 9-11. If you want to get your president to be very popular, just make make uh, people think we've been attacked by a foreign entity. Uh, it, it, it's a great way to do it. No doubt. And, of course, there's been lots of individuals out there, lots of groups out there, alleged truth movement, those sort of groups. These people have made all sorts of false accusations, even at times directed my way. They have accused me of being a CIA agent more than a few <laughs> more than a few times, James, if you could even believe that. And even more prominently, there is a figure out there who I know you're aware of uh, more than a few times. Like I said, I've been accused of this, but this woman out there and I'm going to name her name, Judy Wood. She's actually accused me of being a CIA agent uh, long ago, and I'm not exactly sure where that stems from. And, you know, I like Judy a lot. I, I I think she's done a tremendous job. I think she's very intelligent, but I don't exactly know where that comes from. And, of course, that also would lead me to another figure out there, a very strange figure. Uh, that would be Rebecca Roth, who I had contact with. I was going to bring her on the program, but I stopped myself from bringing her on the program after I learned a few things about her. Um, what's your take on people like Judy Wood and Rebecca Roth? First of all, if you were a CIA agent, uh, you must have been recruited very young because you said you were a child when 9-11 happened. Well, I mean, so I was only recruiting pretty young in the CIA. I was only uh, about 15 when that happened. <laughs> That's pretty young to be re uh, recruited as a CIA agent. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, there's been um, a lot of um, disparate theories, of, as you know, about what happened on 9-11. And I think that some of them, probably most of them are honestly um, – uh, generated, but some of them may have been to distract people from the actual scenario. And I've been a believer for some time that 9-11, um, the taking down of the Twin Towers was a nuclear event. I should mention that Susan Lindauer, who um, oh, yes. was a CIA asset, uh, according to her, this CIA had advanced information that uh, there was going to be a um, attack on the uh the Twin Towers in the form of planes, and they're going to be destroyed by a small thermonuclear device. Benjamin Netanyahu, in his book Fighting Terrorism, published in 1995, predicted a nuclear bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center. And one of the things that, that led me to believe that uh, there was a nuclear explosion, when I, when I talk about nuclear explosion, I'm not denying for a moment that there were other devices. There were Everybody knows there were other explosions that took place before the Twin Towers came down or, or exploded. But um, it's been pointed out to me by sources from overseas that, um, and this is valid information I've written on it, that um, the type of cancer that first responders get from 9-11, oh, yes. more than any other cancer in relation to its expected rate, is thyroid cancer. The significance of this is that um, uh, atomic bombs are the only known environmental source of thyroid cancer. Uh, this is why some people keep potassium iodide um tablets on hand to protect the thyroids in case of a nuclear attack. 
Also, um, the nuclear fission products were found in the World Trade Center dust samples collected by the U.S. Geological Survey. Also, the seismic spike was recorded by the Lamont Doherty uh, uh, Laboratory of Columbia University, which was not consistent with a, a building collapse, but was comparable to a nuclear explosion. We're talking about a small nuke, a suitcase nuke that would have been placed in the basement of the World Trade Center. Um, there's uh, quite a bit of evidence that points to that. And I, I, if you actually take a look at the North Tower, uh, right before it, it uh the, it's demolished. There's a flash of light inside the building. You'll see a flash of flame. And I believe that was to take out the 47 uh, uh, core columns because, you know, the bulk of weight of the floors of the Twin Towers was not the external wall that you see collapsing. It was the, it was the, it was the uh, core. The inner core had to be destroyed to collapse it. And I believe that was a small thermonuclear device. I do favor that above um, the nanothermite or the um, directed energy weapons. I wouldn't right. rule those out, but um, the explosive force as well uh, was consistent with a nuke. You know, it, 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 the, the, the explosion through chunks of steel weighing multiple tons across the street, you can see pieces that embedded themselves in the, the American Express building across the street. It was a tremendous explosion. And the high heat as well, you know, they, they were uh, there was molten steel and the fires burning for months after the uh, 9-11 event. And that is consistent with a thermonuclear explosion, which, by the way, reaches millions of degrees at, the, at its epicenter when it when it takes place. So I, I, I do happen to personally favor the nuclear hypothesis um, over these others. And it's interesting to me that nanothermite and um, the dew hypothesis came out in late 2006 after a gentleman named William Tayhill published uh, a, a book called, uh, uh, I may not have the name for, uh, correctly in my mind, but it was uh, uh, the nuclear something to the effect of the nuclear demolition of the Twin Towers uh, or the World Trade Center, uh, William Tail, T-A-H-I-L. Um, after he came out with that book, which explained some of the things I've been explaining to you, then these other theories were advanced, which threw a, brought a lot of confusion to the movement. They may be correct, but... Um, Myself, I do believe that the actual demolition of the towers was most likely thermonuclear. Understood. In the history of structural engineering, steel frame high-rise buildings have never been brought down due to fires, uh, either or before 9-11. So it really makes right. you wonder, three in one day, how on earth is that even possible? Um, it's not. And again, that would have been beyond the capabilities of um, Muhammad Atta and his you know, amateur hijackers, none of whom had ever even been in a Boeing cockpit before that day, yet all of whom managed to make perfect strikes, bullseyes on the Twin Towers and um, on uh, the Pentagon. And by the way, um, if you go online to YouTube and you look for Pilots for 9-11 Truth, they have a video clip called Airplane Controllability. And they have an interview with a guy named Rob Cavados, who uh, was an FAA official. And after 9-11, he took 10 pilots, 10 experienced airline pilots, and said, guys, let's see if we can hit the Twin Towers. And, you know, the, the Flight 175, the second plane, they hit the South Towers going, according to the FAA, was going at 586 miles an hour. Now, these, these, these experienced Boeing pilots got onto a simulator. And this is for a 737, which is much smaller and more easy to manipulate, and not one of them could hit the Twin Towers at those speeds. They had to slow it down to landing speed, which is about 180 to 200 miles per hour. Yet these amateur hijackers, none of whom had flown a jetliner in their lives, never trained. believe that they made perfect bullseyes at 586 miles an hour. In the case of the Pentagon, Hani Hanjour was allegedly going at 530 miles per hour. 
I'm not saying it wasn't some kind of an aircraft. It may have been a drone. And Maybe. I, I do tend to favor drones as a as an alternative, but uh, you cannot, uh, no amateur could have pulled that off. Every one of those pilots made a perfect bullseye. Hani Hanjur struck the first floor of the Pentagon with such finesse that he didn't even scuff the um, the Pentagon lawn. Yet that guy used to break, burst into tears during his flying lessons, and he couldn't even run a twin-engine Cessna because he couldn't control it at 75 miles an hour. So how does he control a Boeing at 530? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. You know, for yeah. this for 9/11 to take place, I'm sorry, for 9/11 to take place, those plane strikes had to be guaranteed. You couldn't collapse the twin towers without having those plane strikes guaranteed in advance. And there's no way those hijackers could guarantee that. Yeah, I'm no, sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's okay. I was just agreeing with you that there's no way that these amateurs were would be able to pull off such advanced aerial maneuvers to even position the plane to do that. It's just impossible, no. really. You you got to be, uh, I'm not quite sure, you got to be an expert, I guess you could say, or maybe it was something else, as you alluded to just now. And, of course, James, I do have to admit something to you. After 9-11, I, I really hate to say this, but I did discover Michael Moore and I really did enjoy his film Bowling for Columbine, which I did see in theater, and of course Fahrenheit 9/11. And of course, I didn't agree with everything in his films, but I still felt that they were pretty interesting, and they drove a lot of points home. And he wasn't exactly wrong about the links between the Bush family and the Bin Laden family. It's just too bad that Michael Moore was very much affiliated with Harvey Weinstein. He gladly accepted money from him. Uh, like many other younger uh, Hollywood actresses. So, you know, uh, Michael Moore sort of turned into a Hollywood uh, D-bag, for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, well, you're certainly right about, uh, he would have been right about the connections between Bush and the Bin Laden. In fact, right. um, George Bush Sr. had a uh, oil company, I think it was called Arbusto Energy, and uh, he was partners with one of the Bin Ladens in that. And so the connections between the Bush family and the Bin Laden family are pretty strange. deep. And of course, uh, you know, the Bin Laden family was allowed uh, free transport out of the country after the rest of the country was on air lockdown. And shouldn't the Bin Laden family have been kept in this country, for at least for questioning about Osama Bin Laden, even if they some of the family members were estranged from him? So, yeah, a lot of strange connections. And um, I didn't actually see those Michael Moore films. So oh, you I, should. I don't have an express opinion on them. Oh, my goodness, you should, James. I think you would actually find them interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, there's a lot of things that uh, I have not read or seen. Um, that's okay. There's so much information that's out there in this age of information. There's a, there's too much, and it definitely is overwhelming. Uh, the CIA connection runs deep with those two, as well as the CIA's involvement with Middle Eastern countries, uh, Iran in particularly. Uh, the true instigators, as I like to refer to them as, it's quite apropos in my opinion. And by the way, James, I, I do have a clip right now queued up from uh, Donald Trump, an interview he did shortly after 9-11. It might have been a day after 9-11. Oh, I, yes. I'm, I'm familiar with that clip. Go ahead and play it. Yes. Yeah. You want to you hear that? Yes. All right. Cool. Here we go. There's a great deal of question about whether or not the damage and, and the ultimate destruction of the buildings was caused by the airplanes, by architectural defect, or possibly by bombs or, or aftershocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? an architectural defect. You know, the World Trade Center was always known as a very, very strong building. Don't forget, that took a big bomb in the basement. Now, the basement is the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation, and it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour 
because he did the building. And I said, I can't believe it. The building was standing solid, and half of the columns were blown out. I mean, so this was an unbelievably powerful building. Uh, if you know anything about structure, it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside. The steel, the reason the World Trade Center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows, you had the steel on the outside. So you had the steel on the outside of the building. That's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams. When I first looked at it, I couldn't believe it because there was a hole in the steel. And this is steel that was, you remember the, the width of the windows in the World Trade Center, folks. I think, you you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously because I just can't imagine anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. This one was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have, and it was almost just like a uh, like a can of soup. You know, Donald, we were looking at pictures all morning long of that plane coming into uh, building number two, and when you see that uh, approach the, the far side, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a millisecond, the explosion pops out the other side. Right. I just think that it was a plane with more than just fuel. I think, obviously, they were very big planes. They were going very rapidly because I was also watching where the plane seemed to be not only going fast, it seemed to be coming down into the building. So it was getting the speed from going downhill, so to speak. Uh, it just seemed to me that to do that kind of destruction is even more than a big plane because you're talking about taking out steel, the heaviest caliber steel that was used on a building. I mean, these buildings were rock solid. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing. And there we go. That was the entire clip there for you. Yeah, and that's a good one to, to play for people who are, might be Trump supporters, but uh, who accept the official 9-11 story. Um, he probably, you wouldn't have him making those comments today, I don't think, but um, that that's a great clip and um, a, a lot of valid points that he's making, actually. Yeah, very interesting that he would come out and say that about the baseman and just a lot of things about that clip. Very interesting. And of course, fast forward to more current times. If I recall correctly, Donald Trump did say that, and I quote, you will find out who really knocked down the World Trade Center. And this was back, I believe, in February 17th. Uh, he did mention that. Was he leading us on? Uh, I mean, um, I, I think he early on, um, I can't be sure, but I believe during his campaign, he did talk about the possibility of, you know, reopening a 9-11 investigation, which may happen, though, as you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard that there's a 9-11 Lawyers Committee that uh, has um, uh, now, um, uh, uh, with the U.S. attorney uh, in New York, has uh, there's now going to be a grand jury and panel to investigate um, evidence that the uh, Twin Towers were demolished. And also, um, they've sued the FBI to uh, do a number of things, including to investigate uh, demolition of the uh, World Trade Center, to reveal the camera footage from the Pentagon, and also to reveal uh, what exactly uh, information and the original photographs taken by the dancing Israelis. Oh, so, by the way, um, um, I, I do have to interrupt you really quickly and just say I made a mistake. That was actually uh, February 15th, of 2016, when he made that remark. So that clip you just played of um, oh, no, no, Donald no. Trump? No, when I referred to him saying, you will find out who really knocked down the Oh, oh okay. Chair. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So but I don't think he's saying anything like that recently. Uh, I don't no, think no. we've heard any rumbles from the White House about reopening uh, a 9-11 investigation. 
Yeah, that that what that that um quote was from uh, 2016 when he was doing a couple rallies. That's where that comes from. But it seems like um he's kind of let us down. He hasn't really exactly addressed that. No, and and, and that's something that uh, I don't think is going to come from um, government officials. I think it's going to uh, take people like the lawyers committee and uh, right. Law, I think uh, using the court system is is one way to go about it. Um, you may know that um, many of the families wanted to sue the government and sue ICTS, but um, yeah. they were all forced. I'm talking about the, the families of the 9/11 victims. They were all forced to settle out of court or had just had to refuse uh, any settlement. Um, but um, Judge uh, Elvin K. Hellerstein uh, forced them to settle out of court. He was put in charge of those cases, and uh, he protected ICTS. The, the uh, in doing that, uh, the company that ran security at all the Airports was Israeli owned, but his son, uh, Judge Hellestein's son, worked in Israel for um, as a lawyer for the firm that represents ICTS. So he had a conflict of interest there. Uh, these are points that have been brought up, by the way, by Christopher Boleyn. Hats off to him for the work he's done. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, uh, earlier uh, today in the afternoon, I actually had sent you an article that you seem to be quite familiar with. And of course, it mentions the dancing Israelis. I did want to get into that uh, with you here. Well, I uh, didn't read the complete article, um, but I read um, um, another article that referred to those rather redacted photos. You know, there they, you go. Yeah. They, uh, it shows the photos of the dancing Israelis, but they're kind of whited out, and they, they, um, they don't let you see the faces of the dancing Israelis, so you can't tell what uh they're obviously in a mirthful mood but you just you can't see it would be nice to see the, the original photos you can see their their faces and i'm hoping if the uh lawsuit against the fbi is is successful that we'll be able to see the original photos we had to see the photos they took of them you know they were photographing themselves against the backdrop of the building burnings they were high-fiving each other you know what a high-five mean? I means sure. congratulations we did right. it you know and one of them had a uh a, a pass to the um visit pass to the world trade center um, they failed their lie detector test, yet after two weeks, the FBI called off their investigation of them, and after two months or approximately two months, they were sent back to Israel. Really a shame because they knew it was uh, happening. In fact, they had, had their camera set up at 8 o'clock in the morning when the planes in Boston were still on the runway. So they were anticipating this event, and they seemed to uh, apparently expect that it was going to happen. It yeah, wasn't they, like a maybe. It they was, said it was they, going to happen. Right. They said they were going to document the event. Right. Wow. Yeah, they were sent there to document the event, and as you— uh, probably know the uh, owner of Urban Moving Systems, uh, the company they work for, fled back to Israel uh, to avoid, uh, you know, uh, being arrested. So, uh, so again, the, the tie-ins to Israel are, are really amazing. And uh, uh, but the Israelis have a whole history of pulling off of that, uh, false flags and trying to blame it on um, Arabs. That goes back to the King David Hotel bombing of 1946, where they blew up the King David Hotel. Uh, I believe more than 90 deaths in that. And um, but they went in disguised as Arabs. And um, 1954, the Levon affair, they planned to blow up uh, American installations in Egypt, again, disguised as Arabs. But that that plot backfired. 1967, the attack on the USS Liberty was uh, they flew. They attacked the Liberty in unmarked planes, uh, uh, intending to blame the incident on Egypt. And fortunately, the the um, the Liberty survived. They tried to they torpedoed it. But the ship survived, and they lived to tell the tale. Um, but if you go to 1986, the uh, Labelle Disco, we bombed, Reagan bombed Libya based on intercepts 
that uh, came from Libya, but actually that was coming from a Trojan. Uh, it was a device, a uh, communications device that the Mossad had planted in Libya. And so we've been punked many, many times or tried to be punked by Israel. And this is kind of the culmination of all of that. Um, this was, I believe, a, uh, a Mossad, Sayrat, Matkal, that's their special ops um, uh, operation to a large extent, not to deny for a moment that there was CIA involvement and neocon involvement in the Pentagon, uh, people cooperating with it. But I believe at a hands-on level, this was probably more of an outside job than an inside job. Yes, it's a very complex uh, scenario that went down. And of course, in that article, it has a quote from Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, who says in a candid conversation recorded at uh, 2001, uh, he said, I know what America is. America is something that can easily be moved, moved to the right direction. They won't get in our way. They won't get in our way. 80% of the Americans support us. It's absurd. And that's coming from Netanyahu, by the way. Yeah, and that support goes back to, um, uh, in my book, um, my new book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, and you'll also find it on my website, jpearls.com. I've got a, a post, uh, it's called The War on Christianity Part 2, and uh, it's called the uh, uh, subtitled The Abomination of Christian Zionism. And it goes into the whole history of that movement. Uh, the Schofield Reference Bible was specifically crafted and published by um, uh, Oxford University Press with millions of copies distributed in an effort to convince uh, Protestants because uh, Catholics turned down Theodore Herzl when he asked for the, the Pope's blessing on uh, uh, the Zionist takeover of Palestine. To give it, the, the Schofield Reference Bible was intended to convince Protestants that the Bible really predicts that, that the Jews must uh, return to Israel and uh, I, I, I attended churches for many years that uh, promoted that that viewpoint, and then I, I found it's true history and um, it, it's falsehood. But um, Israel uh, is not our our uh, ally; it's it's long been our enemy, covert enemy. Uh, I should mention, by the way, that um, originally it was not going to be called Israel; it was going to call it the uh, the State of Zion or the Jewish State. And apparently, they picked. Um, decided to call it Israel in order to convince Christians that this is the rebirth of the biblical Israel, which it's not at all. <laughs> I never knew that. It's not biblical Israel. <laughs> That's remarkable. Yeah. Learn something new every day. And um, again, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. We're not ending the interview yet, just by the way. I just wanted to say thank you for uh, being here. It's been uh, tremendous so far. I'm really enjoying this conversation. I think it's pretty apropos yet again. Uh, just a couple of months away from September 11th, another anniversary. And it seems like, uh, James, by the way, all these anniversaries that we've been having in the past couple of years now, it seems like there hasn't been that much uh, emphasism in terms of unity here in America, in terms of bringing the people back together under the guise of, of, of uh, September 11th, uh, uh, this horrible uh, attack per se, that happened in the country, it kind of seems like the media now doesn't really play it up as much as they used to. No, it did bring about uh, a unity. I, I guess you could say that one of the uh, benefits, uh, unintended perhaps, uh, of 9-11 was that it did temporarily uh, unite the country. It's nice to have the country united, but it united us towards war, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. And there were, I did hear uh, stories of people who were going to get divorced and then decided not to get divorced because such as a great tragedy struck the nation. It's quite often out of <laughs> tragedy. There are some good things that will happen. Sure. You know, some people, um, it, 
gave them perspective. Sometimes tragedy gives us perspective on life and makes us think about things that are what's really important in life. So there were, you know, some benefits of the tragedy, but certainly it was a wicked deception and uh, definitely a false flag and definitely intended to bring about these tragic Middle East wars, which have uh, just made life so miserable for people in the Middle East and have also brought about, again, the, the police state here at home and cost us trillions of dollars. You know, the cost of the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan alone, never mind the rest of them are involved in the Middle East, those alone would more than pay off all student debt in America. Yes, sir. You could fix our, fix our infra infrastructure and fix Flint, Michigan, and the rest of the water supply with all that money we've wasted on unnecessary wars, you know, wars over weapons of mass destruction that never existed. Never existed. Um, uh, we're still in Afghanistan after 17 years. We're still spending $45 billion a year there. Well, I'm sorry, 18 years now, $45 billion a year. And the reason we went in there was because they wouldn't give us Osama bin Laden. But according to the official story, he died in 2011. According to the official story, which a lot of us don't believe that I don't story believe about that. dumping his body in the ocean. Yeah. But um, if he's officially dead, why are we still there? There's no reason to be there based on the original pretext. Um uh, I get pretty upset when I hear people say it's for freedom and democracy. Oh, boy. That's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's absurd. You know, that that should have gone out with Woodrow Wilson when he said the world would be made, made safe higher fighting in World War One to make the world safe for democracy. But uh, the same old cliches seem to keep deceiving people. Yes. Um, well, let's but, be honest uh, yeah, here. Ter terrible wars and, and, and a great tragedy for America and the world. 9-11, really the crime of the millennium. Indeed. And George Bush got us into this um, – this terrible war over nothing, over false information. And over the years, during the time, people loved George Bush. They had his back. They were all about him. They would basically strangle you if they could uh, over George Bush if you mentioned any single bad thing about the man. And nowadays, it's, it's almost the opposite. It seems like a lot of people don't like him whatsoever because of his war crimes. Yeah, well, even if you're totally asleep, you've got a sense that something's wrong with uh, our, our, you know, bombing country after country after country in the Middle East, never in our national interest, and always countries that haven't attacked us. As a matter of fact, you know, I mentioned we've been in Afghanistan for right. uh, 18 years. Did you know that not one of the alleged 19 hijackers was, was from Afghanistan? 15 were from Saudi Arabia. Exactly. And, uh, uh, Trump did an uh, arms deal with Saudi Arabia recently worth up to $350 billion. We have no problem with the Saudis, even though 15 out of 19 were from Saudi Arabia on that on that hijack. None yes. from Afghanistan, but look at the war we fought against them. It's ridiculous. I mean, it really is. And by the way, I'm curious to get your opinion on, on this one here. Donald Trump, lots of individuals out there, lots of different circles have been claiming that he, no doubt, is a Zionist. What's your take on that, James? Oh, no question about it. You know, long before he became president, he was the first American celebrity to do a re-election campaign commercial for Israeli television for Benjamin Netanyahu. And, uh, you know, the day of his uh, uh, inauguration, he uh, was the first president ever to have his inaugural speech immediately followed by a uh, benediction by a, uh, a rabbi who uh, spoke of Zion. And um, that very first day in office, he said, talked about his antipathy towards Iran. And within a month, he had Benjamin Netanyahu at the White House. And as you know, uh, he's uh, recognized um, the Golan Heights, which uh, was stolen from Syria by Israel as belonging to Israel. He's uh, announced that uh, we are recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and not Palestine. 
We have established our first permanent military base in Israel under uh, President Trump. We've uh, done uh, the largest joint military exercises ever with the Israeli military, including a mock attack on Gaza, of all places. Um, uh, it just never stops. Um, clearly, uh, the powers that be have prioritized foreign policy, and I believe that it, um, it's no exaggeration to say that he has continued the neocon war policies of Bush, Obama, and uh, the, uh, the same mindset as Hillary Clinton and uh, John McCain and Lindsey Graham when it comes to the Middle East. You know, the, the re absurd launching of cruise missiles twice now on Syria over dubious information provided by none of the, the white helmets who are part of al-Qaeda. Um, it's insane. I've got a blog post. It's called 14 Reasons Why the uh, Syria airstrikes were a really bad idea. For one thing, you can't knock out chemical weapons by bombing them. You'll just spread the chemicals into the atmosphere and kill more people, which was proof positive that his administration knew full well that Bashar al-Assad had not used chemical weapons on his own people. But he's been continuing and up the, the drone strikes in the Middle East, and it's just continuing under him. So, yes, he is definitely a Zionist, and, you know, he was bailed out um by um, Zionist uh, bankers, and he evidently owes quite a few IOUs, which has been, um, he went bankrupt several times, as you know, many of his projects went bankrupt. Amazing. Um, so yes. um, yeah, no question in my mind. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been some good things under Trump domestically. Sure, I understand sure. that there's, um, there's uh, been increased human trafficking arrests, and um, there have been some cuts in, uh, you know, the... Uh, the tax rates, which are, you know, that's that's good for people who get them. Of course, the rich benefited as well, perhaps more than the middle class. But I'm not denying uh, for a moment there have been good things under Trump. But, you know, look at look at his national security fires. He picked John Bolton, the the uh, the, the biggest war hawk in, in, from the Bush years. I mean, it, that's not draining the swamp. I'm sorry. That's that's uh, implementing the swamp. Different but, president. Yeah, definitely a Zionist. Yes. Um, I, I certainly, I, by the way, I voted for the man. I felt that Tilly Clinton, everything she stood for was, was things that I opposed uh, socially, domestically, in, in terms of foreign policy. And nobody got more money from big banks than Hillary Clinton. So, yeah, I, I voted for Trump. I hoped in the rhetoric, but I'm afraid that, uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy, he has not been an America first. America first, if you study the Lindberghs who coined that phrase, America first means you stay at home and you mind your own business. doesn't mean you establish hundreds of bases overseas and bomb other countries. That's not what America First is about. It's not about bullying other countries. It's about minding your own business, as the Founding Fathers advised. Absolutely. Uh, different presidents, same war. That's what it seems like, James, mm -hmm. uh, truly. Yes. Uh, uh, I, th I think that one reason that um, they may have favored Trump is that uh, they knew the military would get behind him. You know, he had thousands of people volunteering um, from the military to act as guards at the White House. That wouldn't have happened with Hillary, you know. Um, and he got a standing ovation at the Army-Navy football game when he was running for president. So, you know, um, the people like me uh, were hoping in his rhetoric, and that included people in the military. And I believe that the powers that be knew that the military would follow him into continued wars in the Middle East, but would not follow Hillary. And I think that may have been the decisive factor in that, that last election and why Hillary did not get um, the nod, the nod even though right. she'd been loyal to the Rothschild establishment. By the way, under the Clintons, I should mention that Evelyn de Rothschild, who along with Jacob Rothschild is one of the probably one of the two most powerful Rothschilds in the world, he actually got the honeymoon at the White House under the Clintons. 
if that isn't subservience, well, like a Rothschild go. banker honeymoon at your at the White House, what does that say about you? But um, nonetheless, Hillary didn't get in. I'm glad she didn't get in. But um, uh, I, I love Trump's rhetoric. I love the things he was saying about mainstream media and CNN. That was all good stuff. But um, um, you know, when it comes to uh, foreign policy, I believe that's the, where the game is at. As far as the Rothschild establishment is about, is is establishing this. Uh, this uh, third temple in Jerusalem and uh, greater Israel and the deconstruction of, of the, the Middle East countries that surround Israel. And Trump has been very effective and uh, along with his allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia in uh, effectuating that. Well said. And to go back to what I was mentioning earlier about certain truther groups, there is another one that comes to mind that's architects and engineers for 9-11 which is, of course, led by Richard Gage, who I've brought on to the program uh, various mm -hmm. times uh, throughout the years. And uh, when I asked him who exactly was responsible for the attacks, he did not answer, not even in private email. I thought that was kind of unusual. Well, I think that's one of the disappointments people have had. Uh, but I will say that they've done a, a, a magnificent job of um, giving credibility to the 9-11 uh, movement uh, through the... Um, uh, the signing on of thousands of uh, legitimate uh, building designers, right. architects, and engineers uh, into the movement, and uh, I've had some I've had some very friendly conversations from people there, um, and uh, so you know I, I have good things to say about them, and I I think that Richard Gage is a sincere person, but there are people who are disappointed that they have been focused more on the how than the who. Yeah. Um, I believe that, you know, if you are engaged in a criminal investigation, if you're a district attorney and you're engaging uh, a prosecution, you concentrate on two things. You concentrate on how the crime was done and who did the crime. You don't sit in the courtroom and just say how the crime was done and not talk about who did it. You have, uh, you narrow it down to who the guilty party is. And by the same token, you don't just blame someone without presenting the evidence that convicts that individual. So I, th I think a lot of people would like to see that particular organization uh, be more emphatic in um, uh, the who, but I'm okay with uh, their approach. Sure. And I'm grateful that they've uh, uh, lent so much um, credibility and uh, scientific evidence to uh, the investigation of 9-11 as a crime. Yeah, I don't exactly see them too. Uh, I don't deem them as a harmful group or anything like that, but definitely would like to see them uh, make more of a point on the who. Definitely. But of course, moving a little bit alongside here, there is another individual, uh, Larry Silverstein, who we know signed a $3.2 billion <laughs> 99-year uh, lease on the entire World Trade uh, Complex just a few weeks before 9-11. And of course, he raked in quite a bit of cash that Mr. Uh, Lucky Larry there. Well, uh, Larry Silverstein, um, he, he invested uh, $124 million, and he was given an insurance payout of um, over $4.5 billion. Now, for a two-month investment, less than two months, that's quite a return. Um, and, of course, he didn't have to deal with the asbestos that was in there. And as you know, you know according to the New York Times, every morning um, – uh, Larry Silverstein would have breakfast at the World Trade Center. That's what I read. Restaurant, I yeah. called Windows uh, Windows on the World. But on the morning of 9-11, wouldn't you know it, he had a, a um, was it a podiatry appointment? It was a doctor's a appointment. A doctor's appointment, um, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, he missed the big event. 
So he lucked out on the event and he lucked out on uh, a four and a half billion dollar payout. And he's had more payouts, by the way, uh, even from the airlines have had to pay him dues uh, in the years since then. Uh, tremendous investment. But uh, he was so close to um, to Benjamin Netanyahu. Let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, I think I can bring it up for us. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, now, this is according to the Israeli newspaper Hararetz, November the 21st, 2001, the article Up in Smoke, quote, Every Sunday afternoon, New York time, Netanyahu would call Silverstein. It made no difference what the subject was or where Netanyahu was. He would always call, end quote. So that's the Israeli newspaper itself uh, confirming that how close Netanyahu who predicted that a, 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 a nuclear bomb would be placed in the World Trade Center in his 1995 book, um, Fighting Terrorism, is calling Silverstein. It's not Silverstein calling Netanyahu. It's Netanyahu who goes to Silverstein uh, during these weeks, uh, these few weeks that Silverstein owned the World Trade Center. Well, he still owns it now, but the, the original World Trade Center, uh, you know, that for less than two months, just just remarkable. But there, there are many examples like that. And of course, his children were supposed to be there that morning. They they also lucked out. They weren't there either. They were very uh, lucky. But just just too many things about Silverstein that um, any criminal investigator would immediately point a finger and say, "Who benefits? Right? Who benefits?" Right. So one of the first in a murder case, for example, one of the first things that a, a police detective will ask is, "Well, was there an insurance policy on this person who mysteriously died, and um, who was the beneficiary? <laughs> who was the beneficiary of 9/11? Uh, geopolitically, it was, it was Israel, but financially among the people who shorted the stocks and stole the gold and the Brady bonds, et cetera. Uh, Larry Silverstein. Uh, Amazing. Billion, you can't, that, that's, that's a tremendous return. It really is. It really is. And of course, there's another individual out there who I always, I can't believe he's still on TV. And that's uh, Mayor of America, Rudy Giuliani. Another man who, when I saw him talking about how others lie, I thought, well, Rudy, don't, aren't you the biggest liar? Yeah, he made it a, a crime to photograph uh, um, uh, the World Trade Center after it happened, um, and yet uh, he, he, he said it's a crime scene; you can't be photographed. Oh my! Yeah, yeah, he he uh, allowed the steel, which was part of the crime scene, to be hustled off to China uh, uh, very, very quickly. Yes, and of course we did mention this. Um, Earlier here, your new book is out, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, Solving Political, Cultural, and Spiritual Riddles, Past and Present. Again, I must confess I have not read the book, but I definitely will pick up a copy as you covered some extremely fascinating topics. And I was looking at the back cover of your book online, and I saw something that drew my attention, James. You, okay. Yes, um, you wrote... Making sense of the supernatural aliens, UFOs. Can you possibly expand on that? That caught my attention. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, the uh, subject uh, is one that uh, I kind of uh, tended to uh, avoid over the years, you know, because uh, for a long time I, I felt that, uh, pardon me, I'm just uh, shuffling some papers. That's okay. Some, some quotes. Don't worry. Um, the. Uh, there was a think tank back in the 1960s. It was called um, it, uh, the report leaked from. It's called Report from Iron, Iron Mountain, and they were talking about ways to control the population. And one of the ways they explored was a fake alien invasion. And but they said that the technology was uh, too uh, primitive in the 1960s, and they just didn't see any chance for that. And their final solution was to control the population through environmental threats. 
Um, and uh, I was familiar with um, Project Bluebeam. Sure. Which uh, Serge Manast had talked about before his death, untimely death. He talked about it in 1994, where they would use holograms of UFOs to fool the public. And, you know, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton both talked about how you could unite the world through an alien invasion. And um, uh, that's been uh, hashed over as a, a way to create world government, which is, we know, that's one of their goals is is to um, have a world government. One way to unite the, the, the world population into such a government would be an alien invasion, real or faked. And so for a long time, I thought that uh, UFOs were probably just a black budget Pentagon psyop, you know. But then a um, uh, person in the 9-11 movement, a, a friend of mine, uh, directed me through the work of L.A. Marzulli. Oh, yes. A Christian ufologist. He studies many things besides UFOs. He studies giants and things of that nature. Um, but his work was very credible, and he pointed out to me that uh, very credible people have encountered aliens and UFOs. And uh, I have a friend who as uh, I used to go to Bible study with is a former Air Force guy. And he said that when they were on a bombing run over Vietnam, they had a UFO running right beside them one time. It was right on their radar screen, too. And the thing took off at thousands of miles per hour. Well, that's no psyop. So I started looking at this, and I realized that we are dealing with what I believe is a spiritual entity. And I do believe that the Bible describes it. Um, there's... Um, a, uh, a verse in the book, Genesis 6. Are you referring uh, to verse, Ezekiel's wheel? Um, well, actually, this is uh, before Ezekiel, but oh, yes. Genesis 6, it says, it, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and thought of Ethiopia's canon of the Bible. And it's quoted in the Bible, actually. And Jasher and Jubilees are mentioned in the Bible, although they're not part of the canon of Scripture. And they make it very, very clear that um, uh, there were giants born of union between uh, the angels and uh, men. For example, um, Jasher says, um, this is chapter 4, verse 18, quote, the sons of men in those days took, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse. Um, let me give you another one. This is from uh, Jubilees 5, 1 to 2. Uh, quote, and it came to pass when the children of men began to multiply in the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, that the angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons, and they were giants. Um, now, uh, I'll have to, to find the, the specific verses, but uh, Jasher and Enoch both confirmed that there was definitely a mating between these fallen angels and women, the created race of giants. And one thing that L.A. Marzulli and other researchers have found is that many skeletons of giants have been dug up, but they've been suppressed. Uh, Smithsonian destroyed them. Um, but there were quite a few dug up here, in, right here in North America and also overseas as, as well. Of course, the Bible talks about giants, and the most famous of them was... Um, of course, Goliath, but there are several others that are described uh, within the scripture. So, uh, in fact, um, when uh, Moses brought the uh, the uh, Hebrews out of Egypt uh, to the promised land, they, the uh, Hebrews were afraid to go in because of the giants that were there. They said that uh, these men were as grasshoppers in their sight. And so, uh, per the Bible, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient to the command the commandment to enter the land. Um, but... Uh, Another thing you probably noticed, I'm sure everybody has, is that there's been a whole bunch of alien movies. Um, you know, it, uh, originally there were uh, comedic uh, films back in the 50s about outer space, creatures from outer space, but then they got very serious in the 70s when they made E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars. And ever since, 
got a, all these alien movies that kind of normalize the idea that there are creatures from another galaxy coming here. Well, I believe that these aliens are, in fact, these fallen angels. They did have high technology. Uh, these ancient um, books are clear about that. And I believe that if they do arrive here again, they're going to claim that they are uh, creatures from another galaxy. But I do believe that they are the fallen angels. It's interesting that if you look, um, you know, the Bible talks about demons and Jesus casting demons, uh, evil spirits out of people, that they make it very clear that these evil spirits are not the same thing as fallen angels. They are the spirits of the Nephilim, the giants, the offspring. In fact, uh, this is the verse I was starting to quote from uh, uh, Enoch, um, uh, chapter 15, verse 8, quote, But now the giants who are born of the union of the spirits of flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies, because the day that they were created from the sons of God, they became watchers. The first origin is a spiritual foundation. They will become evil on the earth and shall be called evil spirits, end quote. So I believe that there is a, a demonic and fallen angel uh, aspect to this uh, UFO um, alien phenomena that uh, these creatures are not good guys. I don't believe they're going to save us. Uh, I know that there have been alien movies to that effect, that they're really going to save us from nuclear weapons and stuff like that. But my view is that there, uh, I believe there is probably a Pentagon PSYOP involved in all of this, and that uh, they may be uh, a PSYOP uh, intended to uh, unite us into a world government as a result of this. But I believe at some future point that these fallen angels will return in force, um, that there'll be a marking of what the Bible calls the end times, um, and we might even receive uh, a return of these giants, these um, uh, Nephilim, who I believe uh, are referenced by the superhero movies that we've seen. You know, you had superhero movies along with alien movies, and I believe those are references to um, fallen angels and and, uh, and to the demons, but uh, the Nephilim. But uh, anyway, I've said enough. So I'm, I'm sure you have more perspective than I do because I've only written one post and one chapter on this. So some people spend their lives on this stuff, you know, studying crop circles and right. the uh, uh, phenomena like that. I have not uh, gone into it, but just for my investigation of what L.M. Marzulli and a few other people were saying, that's kind of my perspective on it. But you go ahead because I know you must have had many fascinating guests who have discussed this topic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I do apologize. I'm not quite sure what is going on here. Uh, we obviously weren't disconnected everything is going well i'm actually using a backup microphone right now that keeps being cut off I'm not qu quite sure why it seems like this program that i'm using called Streamlabs, it seems to not be going uh, so well but now the audio is coming in and the listeners out there finally are able to hear us both now james so thank god okay good that's good well uh i don't know how much uh you or they heard, but I kind of finished up what I was saying about my view on, on uh, aliens, UFOs. I yes. tied it to spiritual things, and then I asked you for your your uh, your own view because I know you must have had many um, guests on uh, to discuss this this issue. Yes, it's a very unusual issue, and over the past maybe four or five years now, we've seen the popularity in in. Uh, Ufology seemed to have this meteoric rise, but as you know, history seems to repeat itself. If you look at your newspaper or online, you see all these headlines of uh, things like China and Russia and Iran. And it's basically like history really is repeating itself, James. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Um, you mean as far as wars go? That too. There are potential for wars? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, uh, history has repeated itself many times, and actually, I did a PowerPoint talk 
recently at the Watertown Mass Public Library called War and Deception, where I went through every war that America has been deceived into, starting with the Spanish-American War of 1898, and showed that pattern. You know, if you look at the Spanish-American War, um, which is the one, of course, where we went to war with Spain over Cuba, and uh, really the main trigger event was the sinking of the main U.S. battleship in Havana Harbor. That war had all the things we see in wars today. You had a false flag sinking to the main. You had fake atrocity stories. Um, you remember the baby incubator stories that helped get us into the Gulf War of 91, well, or at least you probably have seen the material on that. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, Yellow Press, uh, just newspapers back in those days, no television, no radio. But the Yellow Press was building up these stories of uh, how the Spaniards were roasting priests in Cuba and throwing the people to sharks and stuff like that and getting the American people all outraged over the freedom and democracy of the people of Cuba when, in fact, oligarchs up here in America wanted to get control of that sh their sugar industry, which is the largest in the world at that time. And their whole, their whole uh, at least half a dozen motives for that war, none of it having to do with freedom and democracy at all. But... Um, uh, the other thing that is common to today's wars is that the, the White House was controlled by the bankers. The uh, president, William McKinley, had gone bankrupt when he was governor of Ohio, was bailed out by the Rockefellers, um, well, I should, specifically a group of businessmen led by uh, Mark Hanna, who was the front man for John D. Rockefeller. And then Mark Hanna became McKinley's political manager. And um, from then on, the, the Rockefellers were calling the shots. And um, but that war was not fought for freedom and democracy. But I went through the um, in that PowerPoint again. You see it on my welcome page of my my, um, my website, website com. Yeah. P E R L O F F. Um, uh, I, I went through the uh, invasion of Veracruz, 1914, which was a benefit of Standard Oil. Um, World War One with the losing of the Lusitania, of the false flag, done for multiple purposes. And, Besides the war profiteering, of course, the creation of the League of Nations, the uh, overthrow of the Tsar, redrawing of the whole map, the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the Balfour Declaration, the creation of uh, the Palestine Mandate, which would turn into Israel. Then you World War II, uh, I talk about Pearl Harbor, the fact that it was um, provoked and um, uh, it, the fleet was put by Roosevelt in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Contrary to all naval advice, as bait for the Japanese to attack, and there was complete foreknowledge of the attack in Washington, which was not shared with our Hawaiian military commanders, and that's covered uh, in my article online, Pearl Harbor Roosevelt's 9/11, and in um, it's also a chapter in my book, new book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw. And by the way, I've been writing on Pearl Harbor since 1986 when I wrote a cover story for the New American on it. So. <laughs> background then that goes back a long ways but then I, I uh in the uh in this powerpoint talk i went through um the korean war i was artificially uh orchestrated in order to validate the u.n and to remove congress's authority to declare war because you know we fought that war under u.n mandate no declaration of war at all congress wasn't even consulted and uh then the uh, uh whole tonka tonkin gulf episode and the vietnam war uh, you know, sending 58,000 American soldiers to their deaths over an incident that never even happened. And then we got up to uh, uh, Reagan bombing um, Libya in 1986, which have, we've already discussed. But that was sure. when the shift changed from the Cold War to the War on Terror. That was the change of focus that began at that time. And that was followed by 
the uh, 91 Gulf War and baby incubators. And then, um, of course, it was Kosovo. But uh, the big one, of course, was 9-11, which led to all those wars that uh, were accurately predicted by General Wesley Clark, including the uh, war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the bombing of Libya, now the bombing of Syria. And ultimately, if John Bolton gets his way, to perhaps a war with, with Iran. Hopefully not. And, of course, switching gears ever so slightly just because of time uh, issues here, James, and I do apologize, but I did want to switch gears very slightly here. I wanted to mention Hollywood and the past few years, like I mentioned way early on in the program, the real corruption and sexual perversion of Hollywood has uh, come to light. For years, many people were seeing all sorts of things, how many individuals that run in certain circles in Hollywood. And of course, that brings us to the sex cult Nexium. They've made uh, plenty of waves out uh, throughout uh, Hollywood. Even though they're not exactly based out of Hollywood, they still have uh, many connections there. And recently that came more to light when popular actress uh, Allison Mack from that TV show Smallville was popped. That's when everything sort of came to light. Uh, any opinion on uh, that group in particular, James? Um, you know, I should probably just ask you uh, how late we'll be running. Um, I apologize for uh, Don't worry. interrupting your question. That's but, okay. Um, it's, uh, We're almost it's out 12, of here. It's 12.25 where I am, in the morning where I am right now. Um, oh, yes. We're, did, we're, were you planning to go to 12.30 or 1 o'clock? Um, oh, no, no. We're going to no, we're, oh, we're we're gonna, gonna, gonna wrap this up uh, pretty soon here. Okay. All right. Well, you know, um, I have to uh, acknowledge that I don't follow the Hollywood scene too closely. When I was young and the content of Hollywood movies was a lot more moral, um, I was kind of an avid movie fan. So, you sure. know, people like John Wayne and Cary Grant and Marilyn Monroe and people, you know, that that whole era when I was growing up um, into the 70s with, with people like Michael Caine. But um, it seems like it's really gotten satanic in recent years. And I've heard about snuff parties and and um, uh, pedophilia in Hollywood and really grotesque stuff. And I know that some of that stuff went on in the old days, but I think it's really gotten to a new level. And uh, Academy Awards seem to be given out, handed out for, largely for political reasons. Um, not that they weren't in the old days. I, I know very well of some examples of that. In fact, I have a chapter in my, my new book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, has one called The Mystery of the Best Picture Oscar, and that's a reference to the 1947 Best Picture Oscar. Um, but um, uh, to be sure, Hollywood is uh, under the control of the powers that be. It is Luciferian, no doubt about it. And uh, there's even a TV show on, on TV now called Lucifer, which makes out Lucifer to be a, a, a good guy um, who helps out, you know, basically a good guy who helps out the uh, LAPD solve murders, you know. Um, stuff that never would have been con considered. And in fact, I do have a chapter in my, that new book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, nice. uh, on the golden age of television. And that was the era of I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners and Leave it to Beaver. And back in those days, television was extremely moral. Every show had some kind of moral um, lesson to be learned. And there was no cursing, no sex, no graphic violence. And But all that was done to get the TVs into the homes. In fact, um, I even quote the um the founder of the church of satan uh anton levey right and um here's um let me just give you what he said about uh television um quote he said um 
TV's, infiltra quote, TV's infiltration has been so gradual, so complete, that no one even noticed. People don't need to go to church anymore to get their morality plays on television. What began modestly as rabbit ears on the top of family TV sets and now satellite dishes and antennas brightly dominating the skyline, replacing crosses on tops of churches. Uh, the TV set or unsatanic family altar has grown more elaborate since the early 1950s. And he goes on. But anyway, that's that quote is from Anton LaVey's uh, 1992 book, The Devil's Notebook. Right. And no question, no question that it started out as innocent entertainment in order to entrap people into getting these mediums of uh, th th these message boxes into their homes. But then they just boiled the frog and gradually tweaked the content so subtly that people didn't even know that they'd been uh, taken, uh, they'd been deceived. But, you know, to get to get a, a mouse to go into a trap, you got to put cheese in the mouse trap. And uh, the, the, the cheese was that the, these TVs were wholesome and they were going to teach your children good lessons. And, you know, it's going to all be like Leave it to Beaver and the Andy Griffith show. You know, it's going to be good stuff forever. And it wasn't. Um, Hollywood is definitely uh, a place where you won't get ahead. You don't cooperate. And, you know, there's uh, some people believe that, uh, you know, I haven't studied modern Hollywood too much, but some people believe that uh, some of these big stars who suddenly die mysteriously um, signed, had to sign some kind of satanic contract to get their, their stardom. And part of that contract was probably that eventually they would get wiped out themselves. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me uh, just given the, the level of uh, morality or immorality that is, is existing in that, in that venue. Yeah, no doubt. There's all sorts of weird things involved with that uh, one particular group out out there uh, based out of New York, that Nexium group. Uh, they were getting large donations. Uh, they gave large donations to uh, Hillary's camp, if I recall correctly. <laughs> so, I mean, that well, should be no well, surprise. Well, she was John Podesta and that whole um, you know, pizza gate thing. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's not surprising. There's a lot there. And, of course, uh, as we are closing up uh, here, um, there is another individual out there who I'm sure you can agree. Well, maybe I don't, I don't exactly know where you where you um where you reside with this one. Uh, of course, the biggest pop star of all time also took a hit. Most recently, a documentary came out again on one Michael Jackson. I'm not exactly sure what your opinion is on Michael Jackson, but I would love to hear it. Well, you know, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he was something was that he was taken out. But, you know, I have to honestly say I have not studied it. You know, uh, I became so turned off by the developments in pop music and Hollywood that I sort of stopped watching and listening. And um, I have not followed closely um, the circumstances of Michael Jackson's death um, and, and life. Um, I know there was a lot of weirdness uh, connected with it. But I just don't have an intelligent, you know, okay. informative or edifying opinion to give you. Uh, you could, I'm sure you could tell me a lot more than I, I could ever tell your audience. No problem. It's just a very strange uh, individual, I would have to say, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of a lot of things that have come to light. But, of course, we won't have to go too deep into it. I would just say that um, there was some sort of documentary that came out. There's two individuals who mm -hmm. said all these things about him, probably some of that wasn't exactly fact that was probably made up. However, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's lots of things that did go on that, well, that aren't exactly made up. Um, I don't care what anyone says. If you are the age of 30 and you're sleeping with children that aren't your own, there's something psychologically wrong with you. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Whether or not he touched any of these kids, it doesn't exactly make it right. And uh, James, I'm not exactly, I'm not even a parent. Uh, but any adult, if any adult asked me if it was okay for my my child to sleep in their bed, I wouldn't exactly agree whatsoever. I'd probably catch a case if I was asked that sort of thing. James? Yeah, I think that, uh, again, I think to move ahead in pop music in Hollywood, it's pretty much a requirement now that you're going to do some pretty degraded stuff. Maybe groom that way. Yeah. Compromise your soul, more or less, if you want to get ahead. I don't think you're going to be able to lead a wholesome lifestyle and, and um, get the, the stardom that so many people covet. Um, it's too bad. Uh, I think that the arts can be very positive, that they can present moral messages. I mean, look at the movie. It's a Wonderful Life, very uplifting spiritual film um, that, uh, you know, uh, brings joy to people's heart. At least, I, I, well, not to everybody. I mean, everybody has movies they don't like, including that one. But uh, it's just an example of right. how the arts can be used in a positive way, reinforcing you know, the, the value of life. Um, uh, but unfortunately today, uh, due to the power of money, which the, uh, central bankers have put in their own hands through, you know, sure. uh, and, uh, 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 I'm sure you heard the famous Rothschild quote, give me a, uh, give me the power to create money and I care not who makes the laws of a nation, just paraphrasing there, but, um, uh, through the power of money, they've gotten control over so many entities, including Hollywood that, uh, there's not a lot. Uh, uh, not saying that nothing good comes out of Hollywood, but um, and, and there aren't there aren't positive films that still come out, but um, because they they still need to rope rope in some of those more moral people out there. But uh, to be sure, I think that uh, the uh, overriding undercurrent in Hollywood is a Luciferian one, no doubt, no doubt about it. Amazing, and of course, as we close here tonight, I did want to get your opinion on one last thing, and that's. With the political spectrum that we have before us, we have the 2020 elections not too far off. They'll be here before you know it. And we've seen a number of Democrats step up to the plate. I'm curious if you think any of them would actually um, actually trump Trump, in other words. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, uh, I don't think they've got a viable candidate yet. It's gonna be Joe Biden's got um, these uh, got the all these gropings that... Uh, Alt media was picking up on for years, and suddenly the mass media, <laughs> mainstream media, discovered them. Uh, I don't think they've got a viable candidate yet, and I think it's going to depend on the geopolitical situation. If Trump has sort of completed his mission, um, foreign policy-wise, they may decide that it's time to switch back to the Democrats uh, in order to advance their domestic agenda, which I think the Democrats would be better at uh, at doing. Um, so I don't know that they've even made up their own minds yet at this point. I, I don't have any shot to call on that. Um, um, it might be Biden. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said it might be Biden. Oh yeah. Uh, well, what, what's your own thought? Do you think he'll he'll win? That Biden would be brought in as a as, as the candidate and as the winner? It kind of seems that way. It seems like the Democrats have pretty much rallied uh, for Biden. It seems like he might be the candidate that everyone agrees with that will go heads up, heads up with uh, Trump there. And to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure if he even has a snowball chance in hell, to be honest with you. And this is coming from uh, someone who is bipartisan. I, I go after both uh, Democrats and Republicans if it's deserved. And I haven't exactly been 100% on the Trump uh, bandwagon, per se. I've always had my issues with his affiliation with Goldman Sachs and, of course, his... Mm-hmm affiliation with convicted pedophile 
Jeffrey Epstein. That's always right. rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, there's a few other things, but but I'm not exactly anti-Trump. I'm just anti-corruption. Right. That's all. Well, he had that in common with Bill Clinton, that association with uh, exactly with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, yep. Yeah, I, th I think it would be very easy for them to elect uh, either party. They could easily bring down Trump simply by bringing about a stock market crash prior to the election uh, and a downturn in the economy and get everybody sour on him. Uh, but if they wanted Trump to stay in office, they just have to, you know, pump some more inflated currency into the economy to stimulate things and make things look good and make people feel happy. And besides that, they can probably rig the voting machines anyway. So even that may not make that much difference. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to depend on um, whatever they decide in, in their uh, hidden enclaves where the world is at and where, how close they are to getting the world government. If they think that Trump is the right man to carry their agenda forward, the best man for that, they'll, they'll stick with him. But if not, they may, they um, may go with it with a Democrat. Well, too, too, too early to call that. Right. Incredible. And again, James, I do want to thank you so much for being a part of the program. And of course, if there's anything you want to get off your chest or plug, uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Oh, well, I appreciate that very much. Well, my website is jamesperloff.com. It's, it's P-E-R-L-O-F-F. -F, and a lot of blog posts there. Um, and my welcome page, I've also got video, in it, video and audio interviews I've done with other uh, radio programs. And again, my newest books are um, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. came out in 2013. That's not exactly new, but it's a primer on the New World Order, A to Z, or I thought it was A to Z, but I've supplemented that with my newest book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw. It's a, it's a companion book that elaborates on and fills in, you know, like, for example, the first book did not talk about Wi-Fi and those dangers. This new book does um, through an interview with uh, wireless educator C.C. Doucette. Um, so we talk about 5G and nice and yeah. um, smart meters, things like that, things that I didn't cover in the first book. So um, those are my, my newest books that um, are out there, hopefully, to educate and edify the public. I'm on Twitter as James Perloff. Um, and, uh, I am working on a book on 9-11, but, um, you know, I've made uh, enough mistakes in 9-11 uh, because I have so many rabbit holes, uh, oh, yeah. coming along slowly because I want to make sure I've got it right when I finally do publish, uh, still conflicting theories that I'm myself, I'm undecided about. And we touched a little bit about that, that, uh, that, uh, earlier in the show. So, um, just, that book is just coming along real slow. Perfect. Uh, James, I do want to say thank you yet again for being a great guest, very informative. I enjoyed the conversation greatly, and we'll definitely have to do it again in the near future. Oh, well, well thank you, Michael. I look forward to that. Uh, you've been a great um, uh, host, and uh, I don't know how young you are, but you said you were, uh, oh, you said you were 15 in when 2000, when 9 11 I think happened. I was. So I guess I can kind of figure out you're in your 30s. Okay. I think I so, was about uh, 14 no, when that happened. Oh, okay. Uh, well, hats off to you for being younger and as well informed as you are and taking the initiative to start your own radio um, uh, live stream broadcast uh, and getting informed and informing uh, your audience uh, on the issues. And I'm always pleased when I see, uh, you know, I'm older myself, but I, I'm always pleased to see uh, people who are younger who aren't, uh, you know, uh, just into their smartphones and, you know, <laughs> into um um, uh, one of the latest uh, TV crazes, uh, but are actually <laughs> serious about the issues and serious about doing something about what's wrong in our world. No doubt. Definitely appreciate the kind words, and I'll see you again in the near future, my friend. 
Okay, very good. Right. Uh, good night to you, then, uh, Michael, and good night to you to the audience. Uh, yes, sir. They're listening in, and uh, just despite our de technical oh, yes. difficulties. I, I do want to say thank you so with the microphone here i'm not quite sure why it seems like things were going in and out there but it seems like you guys in the chat room were able to pick up on that so uh, i don't know if he actually heard me or not saying bye to him there but regardless he was a great guest that was dr james perloff boys and girls amazing and of course when i return from a break i will have to go find the other guest that we do have in store here for you so let me go fetch him, and of course, this is a great time to go to the bathroom. If you'd like, I recommend that I need to go myself. So with that said, I'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for sticking around, boys and girls. I do apologize greatly for all the trouble that has presented itself tonight. All kinds of things went wrong here, boys and girls. It's awful. However, the show must go on. And I believe I have found my guest. Let's bring him in. I do want to thank you so much, Frank, for sticking around here. All kinds of issues were going on with the program, even before you came on. And when I was trying to get you on here, I was still facing all sorts of issues. We were dropping in and out. It was pretty incredible, Frank. <laughs> Maybe it's the subject matter. I don't know. I really don't know. It. Maybe I need new cables. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but we'll find out as we go along here. And again, I do want to thank you for sticking through the mess and welcome to End of Days, the Michael Deacon program, where things usually go well at this hour on the program. But as you know, uh, technology will fail. Indeed. Yes, sir. So as we continue here tonight, Frank, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as we begin? Uh, certainly. Uh, I'm a, an architectural historian in Canada. I have um, uh, made it a passion to look at uh, buildings and the built environment in such a way that, uh, um, well, in particular, I look at uh, coded language systems in art and architecture. Uh, I wrote my PhD on the history of Freemasonry and have quite a desultory academic background exploring the arcane uh, whether it's early Christian origins or um, uh, alchemy and Kabbalah or the manifestation of, of symbolism in art and architecture. Understood. And I forgot to mention, how are things out there in Canada, Frank? <laughs> do, what do you mean, politically or climate? Oh, well, just in general, how are things out there? Not politically. Okay. Uh, good. Um, yeah, every, yeah, it's it's great. We're the uh, we're the very younger um, um, brother to uh, the United States. Yes, you are in Winnipeg, if I re remember, the gateway to the West. That's it. That was the um, destined pur purpose of Winnipeg. It's the geographical center of North America, and it had two great attributes going for it at least a hundred years ago which was that uh, it was the nexus for uh, most of the railway systems going uh, north, south, east, and west. And uh, secondly, is that we had uh, a lot of fertile uh, ground uh, for wheat cultivation. So right. it became the, uh, the gateway to the west for wheat. Or Chicago, the north, minus the violence. You got it. I mean, no, we have our <laughs> fair share of that too, but uh, that is... Um, 
the, the, the form of self-puffery right. that uh, Winnipeggers often refer to themselves that were the Chicago of the North. Yes, due to Chicago's architecture style of the 1800s, 1900s, if I recall correctly. That is exactly the case. We have, in many ways, a, a historic footprint of Chicago-style school of architecture buildings here, largely represented by great Chicago architects that came to Winnipeg to um, uh, work on of course, I think we were cut off there for a moment, but I think the audio came back around. Uh, thank God. But yes, now people can hear me and hear you. And Frank, are you were, were you born in Winnipeg? I was. Okay, you were born in Winnipeg. All right. I thought perhaps you might have gone there at a much, maybe an early time in your life. No, I okay. I started off here, and then um, I held a, a number of academic positions abroad in Europe, um, but came back when I had the opportunity of, of opening the Canadian Museum for Human Rights as uh, I'd been asked to be a consultant for uh, a, uh, a group of uh, First Nations elders that had an opportunity to include their their history and culture in the first museum of its kind. It's called the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It was uh, uh, erected in Winnipeg in 2014. So I came back and worked very closely with um, the Indigenous content uh, in the museum. So that was uh, a great honor that uh, brought me back home. Interesting. And what exactly got you interested in architect in architecture, I should say, in the, in the architecture field? Mm. Well, it happened by sheer accident. Uh, about 20 years ago, I spotted, rather curiously, two Egyptian sphinxes on the roof of the Manitoba Legislative Building, the uh, what you would call the Capitol Building, and it resulted in the discovery of what is celebrated British genius uh, and Freemason named Frank Worthington Simon, and he spent his life in the recovery of what he called the lost principles of ancient architecture. And on the surface of the building, it uh, is very standard Beaux-Arts neoclassicism, um, you know, ionic columns, pediments, uh, domed rotundas, uh, features like that. But uh, what made this building stand out for me is at the same time I was um, studying uh, ancient Near Eastern languages and um, uh, Near Eastern cultures, which are largely predicated on, at least ar archaeologically speaking, uh, the study of temples, and to me, uh, it became rather clear that the architect was in, employing uh, ideas that came directly from temples, and not just ornamentally speaking, but also the ideology. So having spotted these sphinxes on the roof, it can't get any more romantic than that. I just spotted a sphinx, tried to answer the riddle of the sphinx, and little did I know that this building was a masterwork of a uh, an esoteric genius who uh, had a command of biblical languages, was initiated into Freemasonry, and had used this building to encode and include about 5,000 years of architectural history, hidden hieroglyphic inscriptions, numerological codes, geometrical patterns, things like that. And I, it's 
it was uh, such a uh, cryptics for me that um, I ended up um, taking, I think, about four graduate degrees trying to get into the mind of this dead British genius. Uh, and that sent me around the world. So that it, it I had no uh, vocation for architecture. I draw uh, stick figures very proficiently, but uh, studying this building ended up becoming a lens into a wider world of esotericism and um, um, uh, and coded language systems in art. So it started from that, and then everything since there has sort of ballooned into um, uh, various other interests related to cryptography. Winnipeg seems to have very interesting buildings. You might have lost me, folks. Is, oh, I, momentarily. Am I back now? You are back. Okay, perfect. Yes, I was just saying that Winnipeg has some very interesting buildings, and specifically the Manitoba Legislative Building. Uh, no surprise it, it would be set up to represent Solomon's Temple, as they usually are. Not, uh, I wouldn't say usually are. Um, this this building is wholly unique in that front because to crib from Solomon's Temple, you have to have a, uh, a fairly robust knowledge of the Book of Kings, uh, Old Testament book describing the temple and its construction. Uh, that said, in Masonic mythology and liturgy, if you want to call it that, and ritualization, uh, Solomon's Temple is the key ingredient to the amelioration of society and the betterment of humankind. So the temple acts as an allegorical path towards virtue. But in this particular uh, building, there, there are rooms that incorporate, or a room that expressly incorporates uh, King Solomon's Temple, um, but blends it with a very sophisticated knowledge of hermetic philosophy and related currents. So um, uh, maybe maybe I, sh I shouldn't be so dismissive of your comment that many uh, uh, buildings do incorporate uh, principles of Solomon's Temple. That is the case uh, in you know churches, synagogues, Masonic lodges, um, um, medieval cathedrals. Um, uh, usually in terms of the dimension and elevation. In this case, it was a, the, the, the procession through the building was meant to be something that was lived. It wasn't just um, incorporating, uh, uh, you know, cribbing a few notes. It was actually uh, taking on the processional route through the building as modeled by the three stages of the temple. Indeed. Very fascinating stuff, and it's also very interesting that these things always are rooted back to Egypt, but for good reason, of course, and you did mention the Sphinx on top of the building there. Uh, you, you have a very, very interesting uh, building. You've got, like you said, these hieroglyphs, and you have all sorts of strange things like the numerological codes that are embedded in the building. I mean, it's just... Um, it's very fascinating. I'm blown away by it. I, I never even knew that this building had incorporated all these things in, in it. It's uh, remarkable. Well, you know, here, here's this kind of is a, a, a decent snapshot of understanding the level of um, sophistication of the architect is that hidden on the roof of the building, on the chest of those sphinxes that maybe you have an image of, and if, if you don't, it, uh, I'd welcome that you share it with your audience. 
is that it has uh, uh, this hieroglyphic message. And when I first spotted it and took a photograph of it on the roof, uh, it was remarkable because it's not gibberish. It's not just borrowing, um, you know, familiar Egyptian themes like or images, hieroglyphs like the Eye of Horus or the Ankh, the uh, crucifix-shaped image with the um, uh, the circular top. It actually was grammatically accurate, and it was invoking the sun. And in the very center of it was the cartouche of Tutmosis the Third. So it wasn't just a you know, just being, um, you know, fluffy with it. It actually, that, and that element of the building directly correlated to the motion of the sun inside the, uh, the great hall. It's called the Grand Staircase Hall. So, uh, what, what happened after World War One is a lot of this knowledge of, of architecture and the way architects were trained had been lost. Uh, and had given birth to the rise of what's known as uh, international uh, style or modernism. And these um, older uh, ancient ideas of the purpose of, of buildings had been lost. And in, and in many ways, this is the last of the Mohicans. But uh, Chicago, for instance, had building just it, it just took me in. Uh, it became a 10-year investigation because it was more of an an omnibus of esoteric world civilization. And, uh, you know, I mentioned numerology, but um, as far as I know, this is the only building in the world where laws are enacted that literally has a 666 inside the building and a 666 that circumscribes the outside of the building. So the grand staircase hall with the two bison where the sun uh, moves through is the interior dimensions are 66.6 feet in width and 66.6 feet in length. And that same dimension also corresponds to the length and width of the building. So it's not like the architect is just willy-nilly playing with numbers. And uh, also the number 13 is found everywhere. The number of stairs, the number of lights, the number of uh, stones that hold up the archway, the number of chairs around the speaker's chair, the, the height of what's called the golden boy, who's the figure on the dome, which is really the Greek god Hermes, is exactly from head to toe, 13 feet. 13 is just everywhere. So it's a building full of 666 and 13. Uh, but the architect borrows this, these ideas to invert them. And that's the, the ingeniousness of it. It's not like uh, he's, you know, it's some homage to Satan. It's actually uh, uh, ascribing that there is a power to numbers, an ontological power of numbers, and that if you incorporate them wisely, you could use them uh, for effective purposes. By the way, up on the uh, chat room, uh, hopefully you could hear me now, Frank. Oh, I didn't hear you at all. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now, Frank? So I can hear you now. Okay, perfect. I was switching things over. Uh, sorry about that. A little bit of a delay there. But yeah, I do have that image up in the chat room. And it's it, extremely fascinating that it would be incorporated in this building. But again, once you really think about it, it, it totally makes sense. Why? Hmm. Well, it didn't make sense to me. Initially, I thought that uh, this was some biblical mumbo jumbo. And bear in mind, this architect wasn't just willy-nilly playing with numbers, as I described earlier. Yes. He had command of Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. His father was a very famous theologian, and so by the time he was 15 years old, he learned how to read uh, the Bible in its original tongue. 
and uh, part of his tutelage from his um, his father, who was a very famous theologian, um, uh, author of many books, was that you could read the uh, superficial stories of the Bible, kind of like the garments that we wear. Uh, then there's the body of the text, which are the allegorical meanings. And then even deeper still was the soul of the Bible, which could only be understood at the letter level. And that idea firmly planted in a fertile young mind, a brilliant young mind who was an excellent draftsman, used that as uh, to develop an architectural career that uh, and his master work was this building in Winnipeg and, and being born in Winnipeg and many people from um, that have visited is probably one of the most iconic buildings in Canada in terms of legislative buildings. And it, um, and there it was this whole time in my own backyard. And I hadn't noticed that it was a, you know, Masonic reconstruction of Solomon's temple and, and the masterwork of a British occultist. Yes. We've been having a strange time here doing the live program. And yes, be silly in the chat room is wondering what it is. I, I wonder I wonder what it is as well, but now it seems like the audio is working again. So here we go. Uh, Frank, I'm not sure. Well, obviously you didn't exactly catch what I was saying, but very unusual. The long history that Freemasonry has, uh, it's very unique in, in Canada per se. And uh, I was actually asking you about your upbringing, which I should have perhaps asked you when we were beginning this interview, but I was very curious if you had a religious upbringing, Frank. No, not really. I mean, I, I grew up with uh, Roman Catholic uh, parents, but it was not instilled, not doctrinal, not dogmatic in the slightest, uh, just, um, you know, a cultural trimming. Okay, I see. Understood. And again, uh, Frank, are are you a Freemason yourself? Well, uh, I'm glad you got that uh, that cat out of the bag. I became a Freemason in my in the, the quest of trying to get into the mind of this architect, namely because at the time I realized that the scholarship of Freemasonry had been divided into two camps. One is the denounced naysayers that think uh, Freemasonry is in league with the devil, and then those who are Freemasons who proclaim to be the progenitors of Enlightenment, the same way that the cultural anthropologists will do an ethnography, and that is you actually say, if you're instance interested in um, the Guayani Indians of South America, you actually travel to South America, you learn their language, you eat their food, you spend some time with them, you uh, perhaps may even get initiated into their rites, and then you remove yourself out of that society to write about it in a dispassionate way. And I thought that the scholarship of Freemasonry had been entirely polarized. It's either, either highly sensational or complete nonsense. And uh, there were particular elements within this building that uh, inspired me to actually go through the ritual grades because what's unique about Freemasonry is that it's an entire builder's tradition. The whole of Freemasonry revolves around architecture. And that was, in fact, the subject of my dissertation, where I wrote on the architecture of Freemasonry. And most people that, that will write about Freemasonry will not will gloss over that very key, key ingredient. So as the architect who I was trying to understand was a Freemason, I thought, what actually do they do? 
So um, I went, uh, I became initiated into the three grades. And uh, it was actually during my entered apprentice degree, which is the first degree, that I realized I had a eureka moment where I realized that the degree is actually veiled in one of the most famous murals in the building, perhaps one of the most famous in Canada, which is a World War I scene, which on the surface looks like um, Canada's efforts allegorized in the First World War. Uh, and then yet at another level, it depicts the Passion of Christ. And yet at another level, it also reveals rather plainly, and it becomes so patently obvious uh, uh, once you go through the ritual grade, that it is a veiled depiction of the entered apprentice degree. So for me at the time, I thought, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write an ethnography on Freemasonry. I'm going to actually go inside, see what they do, and uh, give public tours of the building where I, I, I describe, uh, describe those things in, in great detail. I wouldn't call myself a Freemason today, namely because you have to pay your dues every year. I've, uh, I've only gone through the degrees, um, uh, the three degrees. I'm not highly advanced. Um, and uh, purely to understand the, the building from uh, an ethnographic perspective. I'm not sure what's going on. We are back and things sound fine. And I was just asking you about being a Freemason because I had a lot of questions uh, from listeners out there wondering, in fact, if you were a Freemason and you just answered it. Of course you are. Yeah, I mean, I'm not one, nor have I been one 18 years. It's, uh, and it, and here's the, the amazing bit, at least for me, about talking about Freemasonry, is that most Freemasons know nothing, absolutely nothing, about the their degrees, the ritual get-ups that they get involved in. In fact, in the very first degree, I noticed that the way they were pronouncing Hebrew words was radically incorrect. So I was wondering what it is that they were saying. Um, and uh, so I don't think I've been a very good Freemason in the sense that uh, you're you're not supposed to speak of the, the signs, tokens, or passwords. And that's uh, <laughs> largely what I talk about. That's hilarious. I have never been approached by the Freemasons per se. Uh, the logo of my show is pretty blunt. It is designed that way as a sign of uh, recognition that uh, the United States is a a Masonic Republic. I think everyone can agree with that by now. And I have been approached by different groups for uh, different reasons. And of course, I'm not a part of any group or affiliated to any political party. That's for sure. Um, but it is interesting that these uh, certain groups do exist and they do try to recruit you. I always found that kind of interesting. Well, in my case, uh, I expressly went out of my way to um, I'll, to uh, actually go through the grades. I just knocked on the grand secretary's office and said, okay, what, what actually do you do? Uh, how can I be a member of, uh, of, of this fraternity? And it's uh, there. He asked me three questions. He said, well, the, there are three prerequisites of joining um, Freemasonry. The first is, do you believe in God? And I said, what do you mean? Like Buddha, Krishna, Allah, and who, is there any discretion there? And uh, he said, no, you have to believe in a, a great architect of the universe, which sounds like flowery way of saying you mean a, uh, an intelligent designer. So I, I, and I, I would cons consider myself fairly agnostic, even though um, um, uh, uh, several of my, my graduate work was in um, uh, religious subjects. So I said, 
Um, uh, okay, uh, what's the second thing? Uh, are you freeborn, not a slave, and over the age of 21? Yes, I'm freeborn, not a slave, and over the age of 21. What's the third thing? Do you have an ardent striving for truth? And those remain uh, in pretty much most lodges around the world. Uh, the three essential prerequisites for joining Masonic Lodge. You don't need to be tapped. You don't need to have someone ask you to join. Uh, it's of your own free will and, and volition, as long as you uh, uh, are <laughs> based on but those are the, the, the three fundamental prerequisites. Understood. And of course, I'm curious, what was the most fascinating thing uh, you learned while diving deep into these matters, Frank? Uh, well, it was nothing to be found in the lodge. Uh, per se, uh, uh, those things are really rather stolid and, and uh, banal. But um, do you mean in in the the, the course of my studies? Sure. Types? Yeah. Uh, I think the the lack of recognition for uh, at least as a cultural provider of Hermes Trismegistus. Oh, very interesting. I would call him the the. Bigfoot of Western civilization. That is somebody who we kind of have tangentially recognize as. Uh, no, maybe that's not a that that that's not a good analogy. But yeah, uh, Hermes, the figure of Hermes, and I don't mean uh, the the swift-footed messenger of the gods as noted in classical myth. Myth, uh, right? But uh, Hermes Trismegistus, who is the author of a vast collection of esoteric writings that ignited the mind of Renaissance intellectuals and um, very much became the basis of the precon preconditions of the development of modern science, the very notion that within our mind, the intellect has the capacity to read the book of nature. And um, uh, there's this fantastic uh, illustration in... Um, uh, Copernicus's um, revolutions, where for the very first time he provides the uh, criteria that shows us scientifically that we live in a heliocentric uh, system. And there on the very same page that you see the great model that we're all familiar with, the, the, the birth of modern science is right there, that moment, that page, he ascribes his knowledge to propo uh, proposing that the sun is at the center because Hermes said so in the Corpus Hermeticum. So, uh, so in that sense, that's what I was alluding to as Hermes being somewhat of a quasi Bigfoot, uh, yeah. extremely important, vibrant uh, uh, component of Western intellectual thought, but not within the realm of Greek rational philosophy and not within the realm of biblical faith, but uh, the middle pillar, the middle path the esoteric underground stream of knowledge uh, that can all be um, safely within the wheelhouse of hermetic knowledge. And I knew nothing about uh, Hermes other than his figure was on the dome of this building. So of, I think, all the things that I've studied, I think it's the, um, uh, the, the body of wisdom and philosophy that um, uh, comes from hermetic writings that... Um, um, certainly uh, motivated me. Amazing stuff. And of course, you mentioned earlier on that you take tours out there. And mm -hmm. I was just very curious if there's been any disasters, anything that's um, unusual, anyone that's acted a little strange during one of these tours. I'm always, I'm always up for a good, bad story. 
Um, no, although I did have the opportunity to tour the future King of England, the Prince of Wales, and we had a great discussion. He's actually a bright guy, um, about, uh, the, uh, it's an ancient measurement called the cubit, which is, uh, derived from the distance of your elbow to the tip of your finger. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that everyone has a different cubit. Right. But in, in the ancient world that uh, you're probably familiar with that very famous uh, image from the Renaissance, it's the image of the Renaissance, which is called the Vitruvian man from the um, um, uh, illustration by Da Vinci of the naked man inside of the circle and the square. And that was meant to illustrate for architects. It actually comes from a, um, a book of architecture written about 2000 years ago by Vitruvius. And inside your, sh uh, what it illustrates is that there's a harmony, uh, a mathematical geometrical harmony to the body. And this harmony is related to um, something called the golden section. And so we were discussing the cubit, uh, which is the unit of measurement used in building Solomon's Temple, but it's also the unit of measurement used in building the Parthenon, building the uh, Great Pyramid. There is a standardized cubit, and once you know what that is, you basically have access to uh, the architect's mind, uh, because once you have a, a standard unit of measurement in the ancient world derived from the human body, then you can have an understanding of what dimensions the uh, architect is taking in their design. So we had this great chat for about 30 minutes on uh, on the cubit inside a room that is wow. uh, directly parallels the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple. So it was uh, that was a really neat moment. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty fantastic sort of experience to have, especially showing someone like him around. I'm sure he was blown away as well. Oh yeah, he was. Oh yeah, it's a it's a beautiful building, by the way. For those that have never actually looked it up online or been there in person, it's a stunning structure. And of course, I wanted you to tell us about your book Astana. And as I read up on Astana, it is no longer the name for the capital of Kazakhstan. And the name change right. came due to the resignation of the president. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, do you mean, you want me to tell you about my the, the book? Sure. Both. About the okay. name change and the book. Well, uh, the, the, the book is many things. Uh, at one level, it is uh, a the first uh, comprehensive study of the architecture of Astana, now called Nursultan. Uh, before that, it was, uh, it, it's been many names, by the way, uh, but it was built from scratch. It's a blueprint utopia, and you could just do a quick Google search, and you'll find that it has the most exotic, alien, out-of-this-world architecture ever seen. And because of that, it's been widely um, uh, described as the Illuminati capital of the world. And I was preparing at the time a graduate course on utopian cities and foundation myths uh, uh, for graduate students. And I'd stumbled upon Astana. Uh, that's what it was called at the time. Astana. And, say again? Oh, I was just saying Astana. Astana, yeah. Yeah. So they, um, so what, uh, why I took such an interest in it is that it, um, I could see how superficially you can make a, um, you can potentially identify that it has 
um, uh, Illuminati themes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. But to me, um, I wanted to um, d- to write a book about it that would look at that and sort of turn it on its head. And so what I did was um, I wrote it in the form of a foundation myth, meaning that um, at one level, you're going to get a comprehensive history of Central Asia and um, uh, a in-depth study of the, the buildings and symbolism of the capital city of Kazakhstan. Totally bizarre. It looks like Las Vegas on some occult steroids. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen, and I, I had no idea it even existed. I wrote it uh, briefly yeah. a couple times, and I, I'll, I'll get into that in a moment here, but I just wanted to quickly add that the structures are the most beautiful structures I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I'm i blown away by it. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, on the surface, you'll see these other completely otherworldly buildings, the world's largest outdoor tent, which is called the Kanshatar Mall. It's a massive, huge mall in the shape of... Um, uh, the, the tent called the yurt in uh, Kazakhstan, Central Asian nomadic culture. There's a giant UFO. Yes, they built a UFO that is you can walk into in the shape of a perfect saucer disc. Uh, there's a massive glass pyramid. There is uh, called the Palace of Peace and Reconciliation, where every three years, world religious leaders around the world meet at the apex of a giant glass pyramid in the center of Central Asia in Kazakhstan to discuss world religion Amazing. and uh, the harmony of nations. I'm not making this up. This happens every three years at the apex, the pinnacle of a glass pyramid. Um, and there's a bunch of other things. There's a, a library in the shape of an all-seeing eye. So on the surface, you say triangles, pyramids, pentagrams, all-seeing eyes. What the hell are they doing over there? So Incredible, uh, yeah. Uh, I saw this as a very superficial reading, and instead, um, the buildings were uh, plot devices. They were devices of Kazakhstan trying to narrate to the world that it is the new Geneva. And so what I did was I coded the book kind of like the Voynich manuscript where um, I placed a um, – a, a puzzle. There's a series of cryptograms uh, um, and enigmas and anomalies within the book that are designed to beckon the reader to read closely the text, read between the lines, and if you discover the hidden riddle that I placed within the book, then I will reward you a, a remarkable prize, which consists of five thousand U.S. dollars, two first-class tickets to travel to this the most remarkable capital city ever built or conceived. And uh, on my dime, I will put you up in the most remarkable five-star hotel for seven nights. So, oh, yes. um, at one level, it's a remarkable study of this outrageous capital city. And at another level, it is a, uh, a study of the power of myth and symbolism. And yet at another level, it's a treasure hunt. Yes. And I was just going to mention here that on your – I know we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but on your website, I did see that challenge. And I wanted you to sort of tell me more about it, but you just did. And it says, solve the puzzle of the hidden message in the Astana architecture, myth, and destiny, and of course, win a luxury vacation 
to the Illuminati capital in the world. And of course, I take it no one has yet solved the riddle yet, correct? That is correct. Wow. Think, I mean, you cheeky bugger, what are you trying to do? And um, uh, with, with this puzzle, and I will let your uh, listeners in on the on a little hint, and that is the inspiration for the puzzle comes from two um, unexpected sources. Well, three. The first is the Rosicrucians. Are you familiar with them? Correct. Yes, the Rosicrucians. Yeah. So the the Rosicrucians were the progenitor to uh, Freemasonry, and in the 17th century, as a response to the crisis of faith and the, the Thirty Years' War that ravaged Europe, they cloaked a reformation of the world in a symbolic mystery that was meant to be solved by uh, readers and people that wanted to join the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. Now, it was completely invented. There was no Rosicrucian Brotherhood. It was invented by a bunch of uh, um, uh, Protestant intellectuals in Tubingen, and they wrote these works in such a, like, kind of in, in a way of placing the pebble of a mystery in a great pond and dropping that mystery in the pond and seeing the ripples of it. And what had occurred unexpectedly is people wanted to join the order because the order promised to bring together science, religion, faith, and theology, and that it was offering this solution to uh, epistemological problems in, in the 17th century. And strangely enough, it was the it was the you know greatest publicity stunt of all time because we're still talking about them as yeah. if the Rosicrucians actually existed and they didn't. Um, and then the second um, inspiration was the Oxford Inklings that looked at elements of the um, of the 20th century. The Oxford Inklings were largely. Um, had you heard of the the Oxford Inklings? I believe so. Okay, so they were uh, the probably the least known, but most important literary circle that most people don't know about because it was uh, comprised of J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and we know their works. Uh, but what you might not know is that they wrote the foundation works of Western fan uh, uh, children fantasy literature, like The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia, um, as cover stories. So what I mean by that is you, when you're watching, you're reading Lord of the Rings. You have no idea that you're being inculcated into Roman Catholic theology. That is the intention behind the works. Yes. Or, and the same thing with C.S. Lewis. The whole, the whole of the, the the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia are actually based on the medieval planets of, or the planets of medieval cosmology. Um, and the 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 ingeniousness of their work is that they knew that the, the, the great threats of the 20th century were disenchantment, enemy, and the destruction of moral norms. So the only way that they can correct those was to write fantasy, write um, uh, mythic literature for children to, uh, to give them an alternative to disenchantment. So in other words, to enchant uh, children. Um, uh, but... Even that, as I use in the example of the Bible, is just the superficial uh, uh, reading of the of the work. Behind that, it it has this effort of being a social good. 
So combining the uh, symbolic elements of the Rosicrucians and this, the mythic themes from the Oxford Inklings, I thought, is there a way of doing a similar thing in the 21st century? So uh, in the book, I argue that there are uh, three great threats that we face in the 21st century. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis identified three great threats in the 20, 20th century. I looked at the 21st century and said, what are the three great threats? And uh, you might not agree with them. These are mine. Other people could say that uh, I think that's ridiculous, but um, I think it's um, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's the um, uh, uh, future sustainability of the planet. And it is uh, religious uh, extremism and intolerance. Oh, I agree with you on that one. Okay, so those those are the three elements that I'm trying to bring a uh, a panacea for. Understood. That's the real purpose of the book. So veiled within the pages of it are enigmas and secrets. You're going to learn all about the very interesting architecture there. But deeper still, I provide what I think is a solution to these three great threats of the 21st century. Understood. And those are some good choices, in my opinion, that definitely are, that definitely seem to be the cause of all sorts of issues that we currently face. I think those are quite worthy of being chosen, Frank. And of course, now in the chat room, I do have the image of the Baderek Tower, which represents the Tree of Life and the Golden Spear, uh, an egg. The sun. Or the sun, rather. Um, it's incredible. Again, these structures, I'm blown away by them. And I would just love an opportunity to go out there uh, simply because of these incredible buildings. And I'm curious, what is the nightlife like out there? It's amazing. I really? mean, every. I, I knew nothing about it myself. I stumbled upon it doing a, a, a quick Google search preparing for this graduate course. And then uh, I, I found myself very quickly descending down this rabbit hole of, uh, of conspiracy and uh, um, uh, <laughs> some wacko ideas, by the way, about Astana. So it, uh, it intrigued me from the start. So I traveled there about eight times in the, um, the process of researching for this book. And just before it went to print, I told my publisher I had this eureka moment, which I did. And I said, you have to stop publication. And she's like, it's, it's literally on the presses ready to, to be printed. And we can't stop it. And I said, we have to stop it because uh, I need to take it back and recode it to put in this, <laughs> this, um, this treasure hunt. And uh, so that uh, during that time, I uh, spent uh, some time in Astana because I wanted to take from uh, the elements that you see at night in, in, uh, in the capital city. And it, uh, I, it, it yeah. So it, it's funny you should mention it because that was part of my inspiration. Beautiful. Uh, yes. Let's let, let me code the book. And she thought it was crazy. Uh, she said, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, as a little sidebar to it, uh, the the prize is actually out of pocket by me. I have, I get, oh, wow. I mean, yeah, it's not like I have some beneficiary 
my this is like literally an out of pocket expense for me which is not nearly as much as i would uh, is way more than i would ever get paid for writing the book so um uh, not to try to say i'm being completely altruistic with it um but uh it was um uh yeah she just didn't want to publish she was like no we're not doing that that's crazy uh it's already a great work let's just get it out there and i said no 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 the I, I knew why I'd written the book. And to me, I felt that just in the same way. Uh, and here's the third inspiration, actually, is um, I was working on a new book, which was on Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the purported founder of Bitcoin. And oh, that's right. I, I was um, intrigued by the idea of placing a, uh, a proof of work riddle inside. So there should be some reward with it and um, scour the book take it apart, read it, um, decipher it, attack it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really fun, um, it's a really fun piece of scholarship. It really is. And now I do have an image of the pyramid known as the Palace of Peace and Reconciliation or Accord. I, I've heard some people say that. And it's it's a nighttime image of the pyramid and you see fireworks <laughs> in the background. And my God, it, it's stunning. I, isn't it wild? Like you're like, what? that's in. Is this the homeland of Borat? What I can't like even it? believe it exists. It is. It, that is exactly how it is. That's the freaky part. When you're there, you realize that this massive, epic, sixty billion dollar fantasy project exists. Yeah, it, it, it's just blowing me away when I was looking at images. And of course, you mentioned Borat. And to be honest with you, most Americans when the first time they were ever exposed to Kazakhstan was because of the movie Borat. And that's just the way the, you know, that's, that's, that's for, um, that's America for you. But the thing is Kazakhstan, I've actually have heard of it, uh, maybe a year or two way before, uh, before the movie even released. So when I did see the movie, I was just thinking, well, that's, that doesn't make sense. Um, but actually, I I do like the movie Borat, and I do like Sasha uh, Baron Cohen. I, I think he's an amazing talent. He's a good comedian. Um, when that movie came out, what was your perception of that? Well, I um, I I mean that the, the movie came out well before I uh, right right was was writing this work. Um, but what what was called? Um, in fact, the 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 scenes that were apparently showcasing Kazakhstan was a uh, Romanian gypsy village, by the way. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the, the shocking thing about actually being in, in Kazakhstan is that it's a country of extraordinary splendor. Not only that, but um, uh, in fact, I opened the book by showing three great discoveries um, that happened in Kazakhstan over the last um, 15 years. One is they did unearth massive um, uh, pyramids, step pyramids from around uh, 1200 um, uh, BCE. You would never ever in a million years associate uh, pyramid building with Central Asia, which is largely a nomadic culture. Uh, but voila, there they are. And it's not a hoax. There were pyramids um, constructed in Kazakhstan. The other thing was the discovery of uh, massive, um, they're called um, uh, geoglyphs, massive, uh, kind of think, think of um, the Nazca line in Peru. Oh, yeah. Except these geoglyphs 
were unknown and only recently discovered. And among the remarkable symbolism that was inscribed on the earth is one of the earliest swastikas. Thirdly is the world's largest pentagram is carved on the side of a desolate lake in Kazakhstan. Uh, and Google Earth, you'd be able to search it by typing in, maybe you could still do it now, by just typing in uh, into Google right now, uh, devil's uh, pentagram. And you type that into uh, Google Earth, and it would zone right into this area. And lo and behold, there is a giant, massive pentagram. So I opened the book by saying, you think you know Kazakhstan via Borat, but did you know pyramids, pentagram, and swastika are found on the earth there? So I hope I have your attention, and that was used as a bit of eye candy to get people in the door to read even much more about the, the remarkable history uh, of the culture. In many ways, Kazakhstan is the, um, uh, the forerunner to what is the birth of what we call civilization. Civilization happened, according to um, uh, ancient uh, uh, academic inquiry, as being either the Fertile Crescent, that is Mesopotamia, Sumer, um, wow. or Egypt. I have that image up, by the way, in the chat room now. It's a giant pentagram from Google Earth. Yep. Wow. Yep. Uh, I'm stunned. You could, you could look up the, the uh, swastika as, uh, as well. And the pyramid. I mean, this is all, you know, I'm, I'm not giving you any nonsense. Um, right. And yeah, so this this was my way of saying here is an ancient culture completely different than the characterization in Borat uh, with this hyper-modern, extraordinary city huh. and as a, uh, a historian of architecture, nothing has ever been conceived of at this scale. They were, they were 20 years ago. There was nothing in what is now the modern city of capital city of Kazakhstan. So think of absolutely nothing at tabula rasa, barren earth, and then in a period of 20 years building uh, a capital city that is only meant to grow to 3 million people. Out of nowhere. Yeah, out of nowhere, the, these great monuments come out. It's a, it, it was designed from the outset with a master plan. So most wow. cities today accrete, they grow over time, they get urban sprawl, they become ugly. Um and not so in this capital city. It was designed with a fundamental blueprint that is only meant to have the city grow to 3 million. And once there's 3 million, that's it. No more construction. They'll move to uh, uh, building another capital. I want to live there. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> Except it's, it's, it's amazing. It's all hell. Every structure there is just amazing. It easily tops anything we've got out here in America. Our buildings suck. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, the modern buildings here in America uh, today are, are kind of lacking when you compare them to other locations around the world. Uh, great, great structures all over the world, except in America. We, we only have so few. It's a very unusual thing. Yeah. Especially... Especially, um, I have to say, hands down, I think my favorite looking building comes from comes from Dubai. Mm. I believe that would go to a little unknown name, but I'm sure you probably are familiar with him. Uh, David Fisher, who came up with the dynamic tower or mm. the Da Vinci Tower, as they say. Mm -hmm. Now, that yeah. is an amazing uh, building that actually rotates, ladies and gentlemen. That is insane. Yeah, no, Dubai, uh, Dubai is uh, certainly out of this world. Pretty bad. 
divorced from um, uh, uh, culture. In the case of Kazakhstan, they the the elements and themes and and symbolism of of the capital all derive from one of the oldest religious movements and the fundamental element of Kazakh culture, which is Nobanism and um, and Tengrianism. So they it, it, it it's it's different. Um, Dubai to me seems like a modern version of Brasilia, uh, which, yeah. which to me lacks any kind of uh, uh, real sensible human qualities. I'm with you on that. I, I do still prefer Kazakhstan. However, and I'm looking at an image right now. I have it up in the chat room. It's the Central Concert Hall, which is another futuristic venue. And again, I, I really had no clue this thing even existed. And this building uses bioclimactic architecture and from above is in the shape of a vesica piscis. I was uh, mentioning this concert hall building and I was asking if you've actually been inside of it for any kind of concert yourself yes oh you have yep my favorite building in astana is called the uh, nazarbayev library or the presidential library um maybe you want to bring that up and the golden sphere which is the uh, was was the central pavilion of the world expo if you want to really blow away your um your listeners show uh show the closing ceremonies of the uh Astana World Expo which happened in uh 2017 and see uh that 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 will definitely raise some eyebrows the Astana World Expo you said the World Expo happened was in uh, Astana in 2017, and it was dedicated to the future sustainability of the planet. So they built an entire um, uh, expo. Uh, the, the entire expo grounds were based on harnessing the five elements: uh, earth, air, water, fire, and ether, and and in a systematic way that uh, could show how the planet could run sustainably. And the central pavilion of the expo is the world's largest glass sphere, which um, uh, emits these extraordinary lights and is uh, remarkably based on uh, H.N. Louis Boulet, a 18th century Freemason's um, vision of the cenotaph of Isaac Newton. But they take that, think of the expo, um, you, you you just have to see it. It's out of this world. I got it now up on the chat room, and yeah, I'm looking at it now, and incredible. Look at the giant spear. My goodness. Incredible stuff, really, folks. And I think he's typing to me here. Not quite sure if uh, Frank hears me or not. Oh, I got you. You got me back. Okay, perfect. Yes, I do have the image up now on the chat room. Oh, no. Cool. Yes. My goodness. And again, ladies and gentlemen, another place to visit in the world, if you do have the financial means to go and visit Kazakhstan, definitely a place to go vacation at. Wow. Incredible stuff. And Frank, did I lose you again? I, it, every, every now and then, but the, the, the last two words, I caught you. Okay, perfect. Yes. I, I was just mentioning the astonishing looking building here and i do have the expo 2017 future energy uh picture up here yeah isn't it out of this world it is again i didn't even know this existed 
that's you know good lord uh, that's one of the great ele- uh, uh, myths i wanted to um uh, expose about uh kazakhstan and uh, asana it's the most remarkable place you've never heard of yeah someone in the chat room be silly they say it's creepy and i agree it's so creepy that it's the buildings are very futuristic. It's astonishing. I certainly wish I knew about this a lot sooner. It seems like a place that I would definitely want to visit. Yep. It's it's definitely worth, it's definitely bucket list worthy. My goodness. And of course, I was looking at your bio and it says that you've also were an advisor for a major film. Which film was that, by the way, Frank? Well, I worked with a number of production companies. Um, I since have a project uh, with History Channel right now. So when it, it, often in terms of historical, um, when you need a historical consultant. So uh, there were projects I did for A&E, one for Netflix, one for um, History. And um, I'm working on one now called Cracking the Code. Um, I'm I probably uh, should have sent you the sizzle reel for, which is, um, anyways, it's an interesting story, uh, uh, show about showing uh, hidden patterns in everything from crystals to the, the the sound of music. Amazing. Which um, history channel uh, program did you work on? Well, um, there was several of them. Um, uh, okay. Let me let me remember now. One that comes to mind is um, it, it was picked up by Vision. I I think it was called Heretics or Rad. Okay. Um, Rad. It was it was on um, basically heresy and heretics. Oh, okay. I, it, it was <laughs> it was about fifteen years ago. I think I forgot by now. Oh wow! And it, it wasn't anything. Well, nothing you've done yet. You haven't done anything as of late. In TV, correct, or anything recent? No, I mean just this um, uh, this current project we have in pilot uh, called "Cracking the Code." On, um, I, I I think right now it's with history. Whether it gets oh, okay. uh, it gets produced is is another is another matter. Understood. And- yeah, cause in in mm-hmm. the in the film and television industry, as as you might know, is you work on either. Uh, you e- either work with production companies or broadcasters like uh, History A E, Vision, whoever they are, uh, National Geographic, and um, uh, sometimes those shows get made, sometimes they don't. But what was the? Um, oh, I wish I could remember. The uh, became very popular. Oh, I think it was called Decoded. I can't remember. Understood. And in terms of, well, maybe I should backtrack and say that I talk a lot about. Everything basically under the sun, from conspiracies to uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials and the paranormal, all sorts of uh, fantastic and uh, romantic ideas, no doubt. Um, I was curious if you believed in extraterrestrials yourself. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should mention that because I'm doing a... um... I'm organizing an event for Atlas Obscura. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Perhaps your audience would would be there, the National Geographic of the World's Most Wondrous Places. So they're a website um, that has great articles, great content on what you would probably call dark tourism. Uh, so out-of-the-way places that um, uh, you m- might not uh, – 
you know, they, for instance, if you go to Paris, you go see the Eiffel Tower. You go to Sydney, you see the Opera House. If you take the Atlas Obscura version of going to those uh, cities, you would see things that uh, wouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, the standard uh, must-see sites. So uh, I partnered with them on doing something in Manitoba called, I think, uh, Mysteries of Winnipeg. And part of it is we are going to the exact site of the purported landing of a UFO in 1968 in Manitoba, which is one of the most, the best documented um, UFO sites. Um, best documented as in their, the, the person that saw the uh, UFO had actually been burned by the UFO with uh, photographic evidence and many other interesting things. And um, I'm taking with me on this part of the, uh, the journey. It's a five-day event. You come to Winnipeg. We we uh, go to a uh, the, the itinerary is out of this world, but it, you get um, an insider's view, a curated insider's view on many things. But on the UFO side, uh, Chris Rutowski is going to lead that part of it on horseback. We're going to travel on horseback to this uh, UFO landing site, and um, and he is the definitive guide for. Uh, as a, a a real UFO researcher, I maybe even suggest that uh, you have him on uh, on your show. So, sure. Yeah, and what we're going to get um, the other things we're doing is an insider's uh, glimpse at uh, state of the art Bitcoin mind. We're uh, going to spend our evenings in a historically haunted hotel. Uh, of course, go to the Manitoba Legislative Building, visit an ancient petroform site, uh, the largest, oldest rock settlement site in North America, happens to be about an hour and a half from Winnipeg. We're going to participate in an ancient uh, healing ceremony uh, of the Anishinaabe people and then have an opportunity to go to uh, an ayahuasca retreat center. Oh, wow. And then, of course, conclude with um, the um, uh, UFO and Bigfoot hunting. Wow, that's a lot going on out there. Yeah, did uh, you know what? I'll I'll find a way of sending you the link on on the uh, on uh, uh, in the uh, in our Skype chat here, and you can take a look at it. Sure, no doubt. And that brings me to my next question. So you are definitely uh, in in terms of the paranormal. Uh, have you ever had an experience yourself? I I, I abhor the term. I don't. Uh, it it. Um, no, I don't. Um, I, even though it's it's a uh, that that my my subject matter is um, esotericism. Sure, I, I'm interested in in the history of it as opposed to being an actual practitioner of any aspect of it including the paranormal. So uh, uh, th this isn't me poo-pawing it in sure. any way. Okay. But uh, it, it turns out that uh, uh, this city, in addition to having this remarkable temple that that uh, masquerading as a house of government, it's also uh, widely known as the <laughs> uh, as um, uh, the center of a lot of paranormal activity, which um, um, uh yeah, uh, at when I was uh, uh, in graduate school, I won the um, uh, T.G. Hamilton Award 
which is an award that you can get from the University of Manitoba, um, which is the uh, collection of uh, works of a medical doctor at the turn of the 20th century who has the largest collection of ectoplasmic research and seance research. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, Serena Kashabji, Professor Serena Kashabji, is writing a book about him. And he was widely known around the world for his activity here, which even drew the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of, um, of Sherlock Holmes, who traveled to Winnipeg to do seances in uh, with Dr. T.G. Hamilton. He left having written a three-volume work on the history of spiritualism. Most people didn't know that um, uh, 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 Doyle was that much into spiritualism, but he was. But he left Winnipeg instead of all the places that he'd ever been, and he was a great world traveler. Frank, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. And, of course, if you'd like to plug anything, here is a great chance to do so. The floor is yours, Frank. Go ahead. No, I'm happy to... uh, to, to chat, and uh, I hope you found uh, your viewers found it interesting. Yes, sir. Let's do it again sometime. All right, my friend. We'll definitely do it again on the other side, and I hope you have a good rest out there. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was Frank Albo. Great guest. Definitely liked hearing about that and and reading about Kazakhstan, and of course reading up on Canada. I had a great time tonight on the program, and of course researching these uh, guests. Both James Perloff and Frank Elbow, they definitely delivered here tonight. And before I wrap up, I definitely wanted to give everyone a heads up. I definitely do plan to start releasing shows on the Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com forward slash michaeldeacon.com. And of course, those programs might not be live because we've been having all sorts of issues during the live show here. But hopefully... All of that will be cleared away in due time. I might just do a few pre-recorded episodes before I actually start doing those shows uh, live. And of course, I will be bringing back the TuneIn radio channel uh, for those out there who have been wondering and those that love TuneIn. Yeah, you'll be able to hear the live show yet again. The Patreon episodes, however, will be exclusive. You'll have to pay a few dollars for those. However, every show that goes down on Saturday will remain free. I'm not going to take that away from you. Uh, Trust me. And, uh, you know, one of the real reasons why I'm actually starting the whole Patreon thing is to get new equipment here. Uh, The microphone seems to be working now, but I've been having some trouble with that and trouble with this uh, mixer here. Lots of technical glitches here and there. So that's why I I would have to try to hold off from doing those shows live. I I definitely don't want to deliver a subpar sort of episode like tonight great guests however lots of technical issues i do appreciate all of you out there who tuned in tonight and stuck around through all the drama Uh, there was uh, plenty of drama here tonight and of course we still got through the show must go on and i do want to give my appreciation to all the international listeners out there and those in the chat room definitely appreciate you and those in the uk And Canada, Australia, and France, the Netherlands, also out there. Appreciate you folks greatly. And, of course, those that will be listening on a Sunday night over at the Fringe FM, much love and respect for all of you out there. And, of course, my home state of California. 
love all of you out there tremendously. I can't even believe it. You Californians out there listening to this program, it warms my heart. It really does. And of course, those in Austin, Flint and Richardson, that's out there in Texas. Lots of listeners out there. And of course, keep in mind, boys and girls, if you truly are a listener and love the show, please continue to spread the word. Let people know we're out here. You can catch the podcast rendition of this program on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, what I love, CastBox. Great, great platform there. I return again very soon, boys and girls. Thanks for being here. I'm Michael Deacon. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place. And life itself is a mystery. Until next time. Good night, everybody.